Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Pick Aside Podcast. My name is Joel Moran and I'm here with Jack Bartek. River's not here. And this is now episode 72. In this episode, we will talk about the Wizards playoff push, the Knicks success this season, if the 76ers are pretenders, if LaMelo Ball is a top 10 point guard, Steph Curry, the San Antonio Spurs, and if Luka will lead the Dallas Mavericks to the playoffs. For the football portion of this episode, we will debate between Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson. Who is better? Lamar Jackson's current contract situation, the LA Rams ceiling with Stafford, and talk about J.J. Watt signing with the Cardinals. And we will also preview the offseason for the Green Bay Packers and the Chicago Bears. This is a loaded episode. It's going to be a lot of fun, especially that debate. Yeah, yeah, it should be a good one. So, we're live. We had a little malfunction to start off the show. <laughs> this is the first, this, I think the second time in a row we went live. Um, We went live last episode or now, this episode. So, everybody that is watching right now, we appreciate you guys for tuning in. And if you're listening to the podcast, we appreciate you guys as always. If you guys can give us a review on Apple Podcasts, it helps us in the algorithm. And as always, please like and subscribe as it helps us as well. Now let's get into the topics. The first topic of this episode, we're going to talk about the Washington Wizards. They're 7-3 in their last 10 games. They're 13-19 overall. They're 12th in the Eastern Conference. They're two and a half games behind 8th place. I mean, Yes, they're on a winning streak. What first of all, what do you think has been the reason behind why they are winning all of a sudden? Well, I mean, I think the the key for them has been defense. You remember obviously the quote from Bradley Beal earlier in the season was we can't guard a parked car, which one is a hilarious quote, but two, it was true. They really couldn't defend a soul in the first first half at least of the season. But as the season's gone on, the defense has gotten much better over their win streak here where they're I mean, I, they're 7-5 and five in their last 12, I think. And over the last 10, they've been one of the better defenses in the league. They've been a, a top 7 defense, I'm pretty sure, in almost every metric that you can that you can use to measure defense. And so the defense has really been the catalyst. The offense, they haven't really struggled too much all season. Obviously, Bradley Beal has been having the offensive season he's been having. But defense has been the problem the whole year. And they're finally starting to put it together a little bit. And that's all they really needed. They've beaten the Celtics, the Rockets, the Nuggets, the Blazers, the Lakers, the Nuggets again, and the Timberwolves. So they have a lot of good teams that they have beaten on this list. And I agree with you. The defense has been one of the main proponents as to why they are better. They are allowing 115 points per game in the last 10 for the season. They're at 119. So that four-point difference makes a lot for them because they they are in a lot of close games. and. Of course, Bradley Beal, he's playing phenomenal. But I think Davis Bertans has been a main reason why they are winning. I'm, I know he's not the sole reason, of course, but early in the season, he was not able to find his shot at all. In the last 10, he's averaging 14 points per game, shooting 48% from the three. And for the year, he's shooting 37% from the three. In this stretch, he's shooting 48%, which just shows you if it just picked up to 37%, he was in the low 30s before this stretch has really helped this season out a lot, and they have to count on guys like him to hit their open shots. They play at a very fast pace. They get a lot of guys open for open shots because Russell Westbrook is always going to facilitate. Bradley Beal is always going to sink in the defense, so guys have to hit their shots, and guys have been hitting their shots. I also think Alex Len has been a main guy, too, 
because although he doesn't get many minutes when he does play, he is a valuable rim protector for them, and that's what they needed virtually all season. Yeah, and you mentioned Davis Bertans. He's an elite three-point shooter, so he's probably going to stay closer to the 37%. Than, it's not a fluke that he's up to, to 37%. You know, it, it was a fluke that he started out at 30%, so mm-hmm. it's good to have him starting to come around. And I think the down low, they've just gotten a lot better inside the paint. Rui Hachimura is finally starting to come back from the, that injury, get healthy, and make an impact on the court. He, he's played some great defense as of late. Robin Lopez is another guy who I thought has had a pretty solid impact. And, you know, Tomas Bryant had shown a lot of signs early on, but one thing you couldn't really count on him for was defense. He's he's really poor interior defensively. So even though that was a tough loss for them, now they've been able to fill that hole with Lopez, with Hachimura, with Alex Len, like you mentioned. So a bunch of guys are stepping up, and I think the main key is the interior defense that's really helping them turn it around. So in their last 10, Beal has averaged 33-6-5, which is basically a season average. He has a plus-minus of plus 36. Bertans has a plus-minus of plus 10. And Westbrook, in the last 10, he's averaging a triple-double 20-11-10, shooting 43% from the field and 8% from three. 8% from three. <laughs> and his plus-minus is minus 10. So... Even though they've been winning, Russell Westbrook still has a minus plus minus, and he's a weird player because there are some moments where you say he legitimately helps you out, and there are some moments where you can say he kind of costs us the game. Yeah. That's kind of been what Russell Westbrook has been throughout his whole career. And it any team that Russell Westbrook plays for, the fans have a love-hate and relationship for him because he plays extremely hard but he also plays extremely reckless. Yeah, and I think even with his numbers looking the way they are, and he's still, I would say, inconsistent, he has gotten better as the season has gone on. He really started off the season poorly, and he's he hasn't been great, but he's been good enough, and he hasn't uh, played outside of himself as much, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, I give all the credit in the world to Bradley Beal for what he's been able to done, do consistently over the course of the season because I feel like every week you've looked at him and you said, well, eventually those numbers have got to start to fall a little bit. And we keep saying that, but he's, he's staying at that consistent 32, 33 points a game on pretty solid efficiency. So I give him credit. And now they're starting to win too. So I wonder you know, how things are going to start to... To ch- if things are going to start to change now, teams are going to start taking him a little bit more seriously, or if you know this this little stretch here is legit. I will say this. I will go to my grave believing that Garrison Matthews is going to become a productive NBA player. When I see him play for the Wizards, I don't know, man. I'm, in, I'm enamored. Like, I think, wow, he has, he has Duncan <laughs> Robinson potential. Like, I look at him play, and I'm like, okay, like, if he's in a Duncan Robinson role, I think he can, he'd be a household name in terms of a guy who is a consistent three-point shooter. He's a guy that not a lot of people know about, but in a couple of years, people are going to know about Garrison Matthews. I'm not saying he's going to be some all-star, but he's going to be a really productive role player. So they are still 12th in the East, and when we talk about the playoffs, I mean, that's why you play. They're two and a half games behind eighth place. I, I think eighth place are the Hornets right now. But I don't think they're going to make the playoffs. The Heat are rolling. They were out, and now they're in again. The Knicks, even though you know they are the fourth seed right now, uh, 
the Knicks are playing great, but what what's most important is that they have an identity. They know who they are. I don't know if the Wizards know who they are. And then it's really between the Pacers and the Hornets. I think the Pacers have more talent than the Wizards. And the Hornets, I just think they're coached really well. They're yeah. on the world right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I could definitely see them getting into the play-in game. I could easily see them making, like, the 10th seed. But when you get into, like, top eight, obviously the Sixers, the Nets, the Bucks are locks. I think the Heat are going to be this team rather than what they were at the beginning of the season as they get healthy. They've shown that, you know, it, the start to the season was more of a fluke than anything. The Celtics, even though they've been struggling – with their struggles, they're still at 500. I think they'll turn it around and be a playoff lock, obviously. And then from there, you get into the Knicks, who have looked awesome. And Tom Thibodeau, you know, like you said, he's instilled that identity. And while they may struggle at points during the season, they're always, you know what you're going to get out of them. They're going to be a lockdown defensive team every night. And that's going to be a consistent thing. So the Hornets, I get... The one thing I would say could work in the Wizards' favorite favor is youth. You know, hopefully the Hornets go down the stretch and they fold a little bit under the pressure of a playoff race. Same thing with the Bulls. But even so, I don't see them making the top eight unless they can really turn it around even more than they have. Yeah, I don't see them making it either. And now we're going to get into the next topic of this episode the New York Knicks, they have been very successful this season. They're 18 and 17. They're fourth in the East. And a viral video of them went viral. A video went viral on Twitter about the Knicks celebrating out, I think, on Third Street. The Knicks fans. Um, yeah. Yes, because we are finally 500. Uh, somebody I know actually took that video. His name is Mario. Really? Uh, he, he sold me Knicks, Knicks tickets before. <laughs> Uh, I sat pretty close, even though there was annoying. There was an annoying kid in front of my seat <laughs> that kept on jumping after every shot was made. So, yeah, so the video went viral, and some people are talking about, "Oh, imagine being happy for you know." A lot of party poopers wanted to chime in on the video, but the bottom line is that the Knicks are playing great, and Tom Thibodeau has been great for the Knicks. He's instilled a winning culture, defense first culture. Their first in opponents' points per game. Their third in defensive rating. And I know Riv on Twitter earlier wanted to take credit for saying that Thibodeau was going to instill a culture when he never said that. When Tom Thibodeau first got hired, we made a segment on this show. JC was still here. It was Riv, me and Riv, JC, and I. And Riv was laughing at the Knicks roster. He was laughing at Julius Randle. He was laughing at the Knicks players. When I was over here talking about, yo, the Knicks are going to make some noise, all of this and all of that, I knew Tom Thibodeau was going to be successful because one year in Chicago, Derrick Rose and Luol Deng basically were hurt for the entire year. The leading scorer that year was DJ Augustine, and the Chicago Bulls still managed to make the playoffs. Now you see, I mean, his track record with developing players is astounding. You look at Derrick Rose, MVP in Chicago. You look at Jimmy Butler, transition to an all-star player and now you look at Julius Randle going from a guy who is known as more of a role player some people classified him as a stat pattern now becoming an all-star and a legitimate guy in the NBA and man I'm happy you know I I had to put my Knicks hat on the table because I'm happy that the Knicks are winning even though I would have loved Cade Cunningham or Jalen Green or Jonathan Kaminga 
there's nothing better than watching the Knicks win. And when the Knicks win, it is what is really great. Uh, it makes the NBA that much better when the Knicks start to win because they're the biggest market in the NBA. Well, I mean, I said it a couple episodes ago. I don't even remember exactly what the topic was, but I, I think we were talking about the Knicks, and I said they remind me of that year with the Nets with D'Angelo Russell, not from a play, a play style aspect or anything like that, but just the fact that it was a year that nobody expected much out of them. You know, obviously, Nick fans had high hopes, but outside of Nick fans, nobody really expected much out of them. And they took a group of guys that had really been overlooked and they turned them into something that nobody thought they could be. And they've formed an identity. And now they're starting to string together wins. I think the Knicks are going to be a playoff team. And it's because of that identity. Tom Thibodeau has come in. And I feel like you know what you're going to get out of Tom Thibodeau. He's a hard nosed coach, he's going to instill that hard nosed nature in his team. Defensively, they've been awesome. And guys have been buying in. And I love the way the front office has handled things. And I said this to you this offseason. They didn't go out and spend money stupidly. They didn't make short-sighted moves. And now you see them, fingers crossed at the deadline, not you know in on big-time trades because that's not what they need right now. They need to just continue to grow and develop this culture. And you see how it turned out for that net, that net team. They go out that offseason and they become the big-time free agent destination. And it's the Knicks. Let's be real, behind the Celtics and the Lakers, they're probably third or at least top five most famous franchises in basketball. When they're successful, guys will want to come. So now you're building this success. You have Leon Rose in the building, who's done a great job bringing in some talent. And I really like what the Knicks are building. I I think they'll be a playoff team this year. I don't think they'll be like a playoff team that makes noise, but making the playoffs is the first step. Randall is averaging 23-11-5, 48% from the field, 41% from three. He's playing phenomenal, but R.J. Barrett averaging 16. He's getting his efficiency up in the in this month. I think he's shooting 50% from three. So he has been way more consistent from three. He's at up to like maybe 34 or 35% from the year. Derrick Rose averaging 12 points per game since getting traded, 16-7 and seven when starting. And a crazy stat is, He's only started three games, but in the games that Derrick Rose has started, the Knicks have a 118 offensive rating, which would be, which would rank first in the NBA. Wow. Yes. Alec Burks is healthy. He's adding scoring. And the Knicks are playing so well that I don't really care that Obi Toppin isn't panning out as of, as of late. I mean, we had high hopes for Obi, but it's been Emmanuel quickly to be the yeah. one to step up. And I'm not even... If the Knicks were losing, there would be so much pressure on Obi Toppin to figure it out now. I mean, before this season, we were talking about potentially trading Randall so Obi could start. And now we're talking about how is Obi going to get minutes? Because there are some times where he gets, I mean, he gets very little minutes as it is right now. A lot of the concerns coming out of college have tra- transferred into the NBA yeah. and he has to figure it out. But because the Knicks are winning, nobody is really caring. Yeah, and, and I think that the fact that they have been winning has been a big part of the reason why he's struggled to find his footing. There hasn't been, you know, games where you could put him out there and say sink or swim, figure it out. And that's a big part of being a rookie and having nights where you struggle and being able to work through them on a bad team. But the Knicks haven't been that. They've been competing, winning games. So they're not going to put a guy out there if he's struggling. I think that Obi Toppin can be a good NBA player. I don't know if he'll ever be a star. I think he could be a good NBA player. 
it's just he's got to have opportunities to find his footing, and he's had a tough time finding that with the Knicks' success. But that'll come with an offseason. He can go to summer camp, hopefully this summer, if they bring it back. I don't know what the situation is going to be with that. But with a, a summer camp, uh, an offseason program, a preseason, and a full season under his belt, I think you'll start to see him taking those steps. I mean, I think that Obi Toppin, his ceiling is a career 16-8 and eight guy. That's what I think his ceiling and is. And that's not bad at all. It's not bad, but, you know, for, for the Knicks, it, it is. You know, it's tough. If we were losing, it would be. Yeah. Nobody and, would want to hear and, that. And looking at the draft and some of the guys that went after him and, you know, like, Hal, you say Halliburton, but then you took quickly later on. So hindsight is twenty twenty. but I don't think he'll end up being a bad NBA player. No, I don't think Obi would be bad, but I do think at the pick, there were a lot of places we could have went. You know, but he, Obi was the best guy of the draft. He was supposed to be the most NBA ready. So it is what it is. But I think the, the best part about everything is that the Knicks are finally winning. And out of all the teams in a playoff race right now, I mean, the Knicks are the team that has had very few low moments. Like there was one stretch where they lost five games in a row. But outside of that, the Knicks have been steady all year. They've been yeah. playing pretty good basketball all season long. It makes you wonder if they can get a first-round upset. I know people have been talking about facing Philly. Philly doesn't have a 500 record against winning teams. I think they're 10-8 and eight against winning teams. They do have a 500 record, but by very little. It's not even a big discrepancy. Embiid potentially matched up with Mitchell and Noel. I'm not saying Embiid would do his thing, but you know, I, I don't think it'd be 50 a night. I think they would make it tough on him. I, I, I think that would be a tough matchup. But, of course, we're all kind of hoping that it is a Knicks versus Nets that Playoff series, but the Knicks would have to drop because I don't see the Nets finishing anywhere below two. I agree. And, and you kind of said it. You hit the nail right on the head. They're not a great team, but they're a consistently good team. And at the NBA level, if you can be a consistently good team, you you put yourself in a pretty good spot, especially in the Eastern Conference and how poor the Eastern Conference has been this season. You give yourself a really good chance to be Maybe even like a four or five seed. Yeah, I agree. Now the next team we're going to talk about are the uh, Philadelphia 76ers. And before we go on to this next topic, for everybody for everybody that's watching live right now, we are going to talk about football in about <laughs> four to five topics from now. We're going to debate the Lamar <laughs> versus Josh Allen. And at the end of the podcast, stay tuned and stick around because we are going to be taking in calls. So if you guys have any questions, you guys can call at the end of this podcast. But now on to the next segment. The Philadelphia 76ers are first in the Eastern Conference. But me, specifically, I, I'm questioning them. If, if they're contenders or pretenders, I'm leaning towards the side that they are pretenders because I've seen Philadelphia in the past. They have pretty good regular seasons, and in the playoffs, they fold. I've seen Doc Rivers' teams in the past be really good in regular season and fold in the playoffs. And even though Brett Brown, I don't believe he was a good coach, I think firing him was a long overdue. They should have did it way earlier than they did. Doc Rivers has been excellent, but if if this was any other year, like if this was last year, I would have said the 76ers are going to make the finals. I would have actually picked them to make the finals. If we got this Philly team last year, but because Brooklyn is in the East, and 
they have KD, Harden, and Kyrie. For me, a pretender is a team that's not going to make the finals. I, that doesn't mean they're not a great team. They're just a team that's not going to make the finals. I don't think any team in the East is going to make the finals over the Nets. You look at 76ers, 10-8 and eight against 500 teams this season, and the only team outside of, outside of um, Philly in the East that has a winning record against 500 teams is Brooklyn at 14-5. and five. Every other team in the Eastern Conference has a losing record against 500 teams, and when you compare Philly to Brooklyn, yes, Embiid will probably dominate that series, but he dominated the series last year against Boston. It did not get them not one win. They got swept. So what makes me think that Embiid can dominate and lead the 76ers to victory when KD cancels out Embiid? And now you got Harden and Kyrie, and who else is going to step up? Ben Simmons has been playing better this season. He had a a late three against the Cavs, but he still can't shoot. And if you can't shoot, teams are going to game plan around that. Danny Green, very inconsistent in the playoffs. Tobias Harris, last year in the playoffs against the Celtics, played really bad. I like Seth Curry, but Sixers don't have enough for me to say that, yeah, they're going to. I'm going to give them a chance to make the finals. I, I don't even give them a chance. I don't even give them a chance. It's Brooklyn. It's Brooklyn. And everybody else for me. Now, th- this is where, like, because I was going to say to you, what do you consider a pretender versus a contender? I consider the Sixers contenders because I would have them at least third, if not second, in the Eastern Conference right now uh, on who I would think would go to the final, on who I think would go to the finals from the East. I think the Nets are going to make it out of the Eastern Conference just because the defense is starting to come along and matchup wise, it- it's really impossible to match up with those three guys. Um, Embiid definitely scares you because you don't have a, a defensive big inside. You know, you would probably rely on DeAndre Jordan, maybe Nick Claxton. So Embiid would get his, but when you look at it, is Embiid going to be able to produce at the rate that Kevin Durant, Kyrie, and James Harden are going to based on their matchups? I mean, you look at it, would it be Embiid on Kevin Durant or Simmons on Kevin Durant? And then what do you do with James Harden? You have to put Simmons on Harden, I would imagine, which leaves Kevin Durant with Embiid. I think that's a mismatch. And Kyrie guarded by anybody. Who's it going to be? Danny Green? That's a mismatch. So there's mismatches all over the floor. But I don't think that, you know, I I would say I definitely consider the 76ers contenders, if for no other reason than how weak the Eastern Conference has been this year. Because outside of the Nets, I look around the conference and I see the Sixers and the Bucks as the only two semi-threats, and both of those teams are kind of, they kind of remind me of each other in a sense that they both have a lot to prove in the playoffs. Coach, all the way down the roster, have struggled in the playoffs in the past and have high expectations year in and year out and almost never meet them. So it's going to be interesting to see if either of those teams can rise to the occasion. (laughs) It sucks for them that the Nets went out and traded for James Harden and now they have a pretty unguardable big three, but you know, it, it they got to step up. And this is, go, like, ha, how many opportunities is Giannis going to have? You're starting to see the reputation for him change. And Bede is going to probably be the same way where if he doesn't start winning, he's going to start to get that reputation of a guy who plays great in the regular season but just can't do it when it comes down to the big moments. As long as Embiid doesn't win the MVP, I don't think that will happen because I, we see the same thing happen with Dame right now where, where Dame is in... He's a superstar. Damian Lillard is a superstar. We all know that. But he's not held to the standard 
standard of a James Harden, of a Steph Curry. He's not held to that superstar standard because we all love Dame and we know that even though he's really great, he's probably not going to win the finals. We've already accepted that. We don't hold Dame to that standard. He doesn't get crucified for shrinking the playoffs because there have there have been moments. You look at you look at uh 2019, I believe, um, when the Rockets faced the Warriors. The Rockets lost in six games. Kevin Durant was there for four games and three quarters. The Rockets only faced the Warriors for one game and a quarter and lost that one game. And everybody talked about how Harden choked and everybody on the Rockets choked when they had Kevin Durant for four games. And Kevin Durant, in the first two games, the Warriors took a 2-0 lead, and he was dominating the Rockets. The Blazers faced the Warriors four games with no KD, and they got swept. Nobody talked about it. Nobody really cared. Nobody really cared. But the Rockets lose one game against Steph, Clay, and Dre. Oh, it's the end of the world. You got to blow up this Rockets team. We don't hold Dame to that standard. I don't think Embiid will be held to that standard either. But you talked about the Bucks. I'm not certain if the if the 76ers can beat the Bucks. I mean, you look at Giannis, he's going to be guarding Embiid. Lopez is there too. He's a pretty good shot blocker, even though Embiid would dominate that matchup. But we've seen in the past where Embiid has struggled against guys like Marc Gasol. He struggled against Marc Gasol when they faced Toronto. So we've seen things like that. I think that Embiid's, um, Embiid's uh, growth in shooting is going to help that because he's a much improved shooter, so that's going to help. But you look at my um, the 76ers versus the Heat. I, I take Philly in that series, but I could see an argument for why Heat, the Heat could win. And then 76ers versus Brooklyn. I don't see them beating Brooklyn, so that's the thing for me. If any other year, I would have picked Philly to win the East. But because of the Nets, I just don't see it. I think this season, their pretenders... That does not mean I think they should blow it up, though. I think they should keep this core together and keep adding on to it because you got to at least hope that Simmons can find that jump shot because once he finds it, now we're talking about this whole narrative is completely switched. Is he going to, though? I don't know, man. That that jumper against Cleveland looked pretty sweet. I, I how many, like how many times are we gonna how many times are we gonna do this dance though? Where you know we see him hit a jump shot and we're like, oh, this could be it. This could be the turning point. And then you don't see him shoot again for for four weeks. You know it. He's got to do it eventually. And if he does develop a jump shot, the Sixers are scary because Ben Simmons would be one of the most versatile players in basketball. It doesn't even have to be a great jump shot. Even if he could get it to like. 30% and and consistently shooting the ball, that's scary. But he's got to do that. And when he does, the Sixers will be very dangerous. Yeah, I mean, hopefully they, they uh make it to the Eastern Conference Finals at least. I think they can do that. It really depends on the matchups. If they face the Bucks in the second round, yeah, that's going to be tough. Yeah, it depends how the seeding shakes out because I think it really boils down to the Nets, the Bucks, and the Sixers. Two of those three teams will be in the Eastern Conference Finals, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Now the next topic, we are going to talk about LaMelo Ball. So Rivers suggested this topic about uh, LaMelo Ball being a top 10 point guard. Miss you, Rivers. And uh, Gilbert Arenas, I actually saw a video similar to to this topic. Gilbert Arenas uh, had uh, Nick Young on his podcast, No Chill Gil podcast, I think, No Chill podcast. And... Nick Young said that LaMelo Ball is a top 10 player right now. 
uh, top point ten, guard. top ten point guard right now. So, I mean, your opinion is Lamelo Ball a top ten point guard? See, I have a list of point guards written down: Curry, Conley, Lillard, Paul, Doncic, Dragic, Fox, Holiday, Kyrie Irving, Kyle Lowry, John Morant, Jamal Murray, Colin Sexton, Ben Simmons, D'Angelo Russell, Russell Westbrook, John Wall, Kemba Walker, Trey Young. When I first saw the topic, when I first saw like you sent the topic list out, and I saw this topic, I was like, "What are we? What are we doing here? This is crazy." But then I really started to look into it. It's not that outlandish of a thing to say. I think that there's a top tier of NBA point guards. We're considering Luca a point guard at this point, correct? Yes, but not LeBron, right? So, so we're considering true point guards in this discussion: Dame, Luca, Steph, Kyrie are no-brainers, like not even uh, an inkling of a thought. Those are the top four. And then from there, I still would have guys like Trey Young, Chris Paul, De'Aaron Fox, um, you know, Ben Simmons, depending on... I uh, People flip-flop on Ben Simmons, but, you know, I, I think he's closer to that category than we think. Jamal Murray, Malcolm Brogdon, Mike Conley... Drew Drew Holiday, Colin Sexton, like I think he he's creeping into that at least top fifteen it, the way he's playing right now. Oh, I think he's definitely top fifteen. Yeah. Uh, he is better than Drogic. He's better than Sexton. He's better than Kemba. He's better than John Wall. Right now, he's better than them. Debatables. Russell Westbrook is debatable, and I, I take Lamelo over Russell Westbrook. I would probably take Lamelo. D'Angelo Russell, I take Lamelo over D'Angelo Russell. Even I love Russell, but he's more of a scoring guard. Yeah. If I'm looking for a more complete point guard, Lamelo. Drew Holiday, I think that's tough only because of his elite defense. I would take Drew just because of the defense. Yeah, so I think maybe you slide in Drew there. John Morant, look, I like John Morant, but I think Lamelo Ball is better. You know, he's just more a natural passer. He could do everything John Morant can do when he's like six inches taller. I think I take him over Ja. The Aaron Fox. I'll take LaMelo over De'Aaron Fox. Let me ask you, are you taking like potential into consideration? Or are you I'm just taking, judging them off of right this second? I'm taking potential into it, but I'm also okay. judging them right on this second because LaMelo's averaging 26-6 and six in his 13 starts. So he's, he's balling out when he starts. And when you look at them play, when you look at LaMelo and Fox play, LaMelo just has a bigger impact. Looking at the head-to-head, the Kings versus Hornets, I've seen LaMelo play better I feel like LaMelo is better. Then you look at Mike Conley, it's tough because Conley is in a winning situation right now. He's doing what he's doing. But if you're obviously if you're making a team, you're taking LaMelo over <laughs> Conley, no brainer. But for the Utah Jazz, like if you take Conley out and you put LaMelo in, are the Jazz better? You can really make an argument that they might be. I think they might get worse because I do think Mike Conley's like as much as it sounds cliche, his veteran leadership has played yeah, yeah, a big yeah. role. Then Trey Young. I don't know. I know Trey is balling. <laughs> I, I know Trey Young has numbers, but it's something about LaMelo. It's the smile on his face. And I'll tell you it's what. It's the energy he plays with. I'd, I'd take LaMelo over Trey. I know Trey Young is great and all, but in that system that he plays in, dominating the ball so much, it's just different. LaMelo ball, if he were to dominate the ball that much, I think he'd average similar numbers. Yeah, I, I've watched the Hawks. A good amount this year, and they are probably one of my least 
favorite teams to watch in the league. And maybe that is like impacting my opinion on Trey Young. He's a great player, don't get me wrong, but I don't find their offense enjoyable to watch at all. And, and I love watching the Hornets. Then we look at LaMelo and Ben Simmons. I would take Ben Simmons because he's an elite defender. But in a year or two, this could be LaMelo easy. Like, it could be a no-brainer. Then we look at Jamal Murray. If we're going off a regular season, like, do you want regular season LaMelo or regular season Jamal Murray? I'm taking regular season LaMelo ball. But because Jamal Murray has had explosive playoff games and I know what he's capable of doing, I would take take Jamal Murray. Then you look at Kyle Lowry. Kyle Lowry and LaMelo is tough. Because what do you think? You think that the Raptors get better with LaMelo? You switching out Kyle Lowry for LaMelo? I think that I think he's a better offensive player than Kyle Lowry all around right now. I think the only no doubt about it, they're better than LaMelo are Steph, Luca, Dame, Kyrie, Chris Paul, Ben Simmons. And even Ben Simmons. And everybody else, I don't know. So that, so yeah, I think we both agree on this one. He is in like anywhere from the third. Depending on you depending 17. on who you ask, he's on he's six to He's six to thirteen. Yeah, I don't think you can put more people over him. Yeah, I just don't I, think so. I agree with you there. And I know he's just a rookie, but when you look at him play, it's just something about him that says special. I said it, it we, screams out special. Yeah, when we were doing our rookie power rankings, I think it was right after the Kings game when him and Halliburton faced off. He's just not afraid at all. He doesn't have that rookie tentativeness. He's coming to the league, and I think it helps that he's played in two professional leagues prior to this. He's coming to the league with that swagger and that confidence that you develop during your years in the NBA. And that's a rare thing to have from day one stepping into the league. So I'm going to say this. This is a, this might sound crazy, but oh. LaMelo Ball is a top 10 point guard right now. Steph, Luka, Dame, Kyrie, and Chris Paul are better. And Ben Simmons, I'll put in there. But LaMelo Ball is better than Kyle Lowry in the regular season, Jamal Murray, Trey Young. I'd have him over Russell Westbrook, D'Angelo Russell, Drew Holiday, John Morant, De'Aaron Fox, and Mike Conley. That's just my opinion. And he's better than Goran Dragic, Colin Sexton, Kemba Walker, and John Wall. Because of that, I think LaMelo Ball is a top 10 point guard. I would say he's right at 10. And, you know, I was watching a video of, because uh, when, when Riv made that ridiculous comment that he knew the Thibodeau was going to change the culture of New York, <laughs> I know he didn't say that, so I went and I checked the video. And in that video, surprisingly... LaMelo Ball's name came up, and Riv in that video said, LaMelo Ball can't play defense. And then and then JC asked, he can't play or he doesn't want to? And then Riv was like, no, I just think he can't play. That was so, a— that that was, was, you know, I, I'm just say, saying, so of course he would not be so high on LaMelo Ball. JC made a good point that LaMelo's kind of disproven a little bit this season, in my opinion— his work ethic was a question mark of mine. And just like, I don't want to say his character because he's not a, not like a, a criminal or anything, but just like you wondered if his head was too big. Just how I mentioned that confidence before, it can be a good thing, but with too much of it, it could become a bad thing. And I think he's done a great job of being confident but not cocky. And I think he's perfectly towed the line. He's made some rookie mistakes here and there, but he has really showed superstar potential this season is what a lot of Steph Curry haters were waiting on to happen last season I think it was as well especially me 
I will say it. I'm not. I haven't been the biggest fan of Steph Curry. I've been a Steph Curry hater for most of my time being an NBA fan and being a fan of uh, this decade of basketball. I've been waiting on, on Steph Curry to not have Clay, to not have KD, to be out there. Try to carry a team. Like I've seen my superstar, James Harden, carry his team in the Houston Rockets all those eight years that he was there. And Steph Curry in 2019 got hurt, so he didn't get to see that. But this year in 2020, he's gotten a chance to do that. The Warriors are 19-16 and 16 this year. They're the eighth seed. Kelly Oubre started out slow, but now he's averaging 20 points per game in the month of February, so he's picking it up. Draymond Green getting double-digit assists every other game. This season, Curry's averaging 29.5 points per game, 5.4 rebounds, 6.4 assists, shooting 47% from the field, 41% from three. And those numbers are not that close to his MVP season, but they're pretty similar. Earlier in the year, they were very similar, but now there's a discrepancy. In his MVP year, he averaged 30 points per game, the same amount of rebounds, the same amount of assists, but he shot 50% from the field and 45% from three. But that begs the question, is is Steph Curry's season, is his season right now being overlooked because the Warriors are not winning as much and they are the eighth seed? I don't think it's being overlooked at all, and maybe I'm just listening to the wrong crowds or different crowds than some other people are, but I've heard him in MVP conversations, you know, towards the tail end of, like, the top ten, but I've heard him you know, being discussed for being as valuable as he is, which is having the Warriors at an eight seed. If it wasn't for him, they would be a a low-end lottery team. Like, they would be bad. There's no question about it. So he has an impact, but he's not on that level of a LeBron or a James Harden or a Kevin Durant that you could put them on a team and automatically they become one of the best teams in, in their conference, at least, if not the entire league. And... You know, I don't want that to sound like it's taking away from Steph Curry. He is the greatest shooter of all time. He's a superstar, but he has been aided by that system. That system is perfect for what it, it complements him perfectly. It has Draymond Green, one of the best defender playmakers in the league. It has Klay Thompson, one of the other best shooters in the league, a great spot-up guy, a lot of gravity, and an incredible perimeter defender that can take the load off of him defensively. And, and Steve Kerr has done a great job implementing different pieces here and there. They've done a great job filling out the talent. And it also helped having Kevin Durant for two years where, honestly, if they don't have Kevin Durant for those two seasons, I don't know that they win a ring in either of those years where they met the LeBron James Cavs in the finals. Unfortunately, we'll never get to know. But I don't think it's being overlooked. I think it's being perfectly looked at for what it is. He is playing at an MVP level. But I don't think he has as much of an impact as a guy like a LeBron, a James Harden, or a Kevin Durant does where you can put them on a team and they automatically make them a contender. I'll be honest. I don't know if Kevin Durant has that. that that's just me. He's been on great teams his entire career. I think the only guys, the only two guys I can look at in the NBA that have done it, that I've seen it, are Harden and LeBron. No other player outside of Harden and LeBron can carry a team like they can carry teams. And LeBron, of course, is on a different level. I've been waiting for this moment. And I I wish Riv was here so we can debate this because I would have won a debate, of course, but it would have been a great one. The bottom line is that you don't get recognized if you lose. That's the hard truth. 
Curry, yes. He has nothing left to prove in his career because he's done it all, basically. But Zach Levine, last couple of years, had a lot of scoring, doesn't win. Bradley Beal, not winning. So they don't get noticed like that. Of course, Bradley Beal did start in the All-Star game, but last year he averaged 30 and got snubbed. So you don't get noticed if you don't win. And, you know, I'll say this. Steph Curry fans are the most annoying fans in the NBA. Because on Twitter, especially on Twitter, Twitter Steph Curry fans are the most annoying fans. All they like to flaunt is true shooting percentage, which is inflated by free throw percentage stats. Um, all they like to flaunt is, oh, Steph Curry is 14-5 and five against Kevin Durant, LeBron James, James Harden, and every superstar combined in the NBA. Oh, yeah, Steph Curry and who else? Can you mention the other players that he had? Steph Curry fans act like he was the sole guy on those teams, and that's what pisses me off because he wasn't. He had Draymond, who was an elite, who still is an elite defender, one of the best in our time. Klay Thompson, one of the second best three point shooter of all time, an elite defender who takes a load off of Curry. Eagle Dalla was an all star before he went to Golden State. Harrison Barnes is not no scrub. He left Golden State and averaged 20 on the Mavericks. He's not no scrub. And then they got Kevin Durant. Not to mention the year they won the finals, Kyrie and Caleb were injured. So, we got to chill out with this Steph Curry talk. Steph Curry's an amazing player, but all I heard was all I heard when Steph Curry was winning and Harden was lo- and Harden was winning but not going to the championship was and getting great stats was oh, if you put Curry in that system, he'd put up the exact same numbers. Well, Curry's usage percentage this year is 32.3. He's averaging 29 and 6. Harden's usage percentage in 2016-2017 season was 36.2 and averaged 29-11-8. That's not that far of a usage percentage, and he averaged damn near triple-double. Should have won the MVP that year, but it went to Westbrook because he averaged triple-double. So Curry, as much as people want to make it seem like if he was put in the exact same situation, he would have done the same, no, he wouldn't have because he can't, he can't handle the ball like Harden all game long and take on that type of load and remain healthy. You run him off the screens, you do what you got to do with him, but being what Harden does, isoing, getting to the basket, getting 11 plus assists a game, Curry, I don't think he's that type of player. And, you know, respectfully, I don't think Harden is the type of player Curry is where he could play off the ball like Curry because Curry, the way he play off, the way he plays off the ball is next level. But yeah. You know, people like to act like, sorry for going to you but people like to act like Steph Curry was the lone guy on those Warriors teams. What was their slogan? Strength in numbers. <laughs> that, that was their slogan. Their slogan was strength in numbers. How was it just Steph Curry? But Steph Curry fans love to act like it was just him. And, oh, Curry is 14 and 5 against these superstars. That's why, all oh, they love to flaunt it. But their slogan was strength in in numbers. Look it up. They got banners. They got pictures. Strength in numbers. Literally. Yeah. For me, I don't think it is like an indictment on Steph or I don't think it's some like gotcha moment on his career. He's a top five player in the league. He is incredible. He's a superstar. But where you lose me is where people start to say he's a LeBron type player. He's better than LeBron because he can't and won't ever have that same impact. And there's nothing wrong with that. When you put him up against other superstars in the league, Anthony Davis, when he was with the Pelicans, couldn't get them to be one of the top teams in the Western Conference by himself. You look at Kawhi Leonard, 
he when he was his whole career he's been on teams with great talent around him you know you look at Damian Lillard has had CJ McCollum his whole career when you look at other superstars in the league that have been in situations with a lack of talent around them you know he's done better than most a guy like Devin Booker before Devin Booker got Chris Paul the Suns weren't a playoff team Bradley Beal this year is averaging 33 points a game, but the Wizards aren't a playoff team. And you could go on and on and on, but Steph Curry certainly has a great impact like a superstar player would. Like Anthony Davis had for the Pelicans. He made a non-playoff team into a playoff team and a playoff lock in the Western Conference, which is impressive. And what Steph Curry is doing for the Warriors this year is impressive. There's no question about it. But I think this should put to bed the discussions of, does he have the same impact of a guy like LeBron? No, and that is not a knock. LeBron is one of the two greatest players in NBA history, so nobody has that kind of impact. But you know, I think that this season is starting to show the difference between a superstar and a generational talent, for a lack of a better word. Uh, I kind of disagree with you because, I mean, nobody's close to LeBron. I, I think Harden and Curry are similar, but... The thing about him is that I think Harden raises the floor of your team by an exorbitant amount. If he's on a team, we've seen him with Landry Shamit and Joe Harris beat the Suns with the Nets this season. He raises the floor on your team where Steph Curry raises the ceiling. Yeah. You know, Curry cannot go to those Houston Rockets teams with Jeremy Lin, Chandler Parsons, Omar Oshik, and take you to be the second best team in the Western Conference. I don't think he could do that. Harden was taking the team to the playoffs every single year. And the thing about it is that it annoys me because, yes, we can acknowledge Steph Curry's greatness, but everybody that's a Steph Curry fan loves to loves to downplay every other superstar because they haven't beaten the Warriors or Steph Curry in the playoffs when Curry has had the better team every single time they've matched up. You're telling me if you give Harden Clay, Draymond, Iggy, Harrison Barnes, Andrew Bogut, Leandro Barbosa, David Lee, and all those guys, he's not winning the championship? You're crazy. He is. Yeah, and and I would say, not to cut you off, I would say I would be very interested to see James Harden on those Warrior teams. You know, I, In that system, like you said, I don't know if he raises the ceiling as much as Steph Curry does. I don't know if he fits that as well as Steph Curry does. So it's an interesting discussion, and I think sometimes we just need to look at guys for what they are and not try and play the hypothetical game of if you put this guy in this place, you know what would they do? I think Steph Curry is starting his role, and James Harden is starting his role, regardless of you know what the circumstances may have been. A team that is actually getting slept on right now is the San Antonio Spurs. They are seventeen and twelve in the Western Conference. They're fifth right now in the seedings. They're 8-8 eight eight against 500 teams and 9-4 and four against teams below 500. I did not expect this. I thought the Spurs were not going to be a playoff team. And if they were, I thought it would have been the 8th seed. I did not see them this high. DeRozan has taken a leap as a playmaker this year to the point that Spurs fans want DeRozan back. They, they currently would face the Suns in the playoffs. And I think they can win that series. I know that the Suns got Booker, they got Paul, they got Aiton. But you look at the talent on the Spurs. You look at DeJounte Murray. 
You look at Keldon Johnson, Lonnie Walker, LaMarcus Aldridge, DeMar DeRozan. I mean, I think they can beat most teams in the Western Conference on any given night. Outside of the top teams in the West, I don't think it'd be crazy to say that the Spurs can beat them in a series because they are so well coached. They're going to be probably the best coached team in any series that they play. And because of that and their talent, I'd give them a shot to win. But I did not expect this out of the Spurs this season. They have been playing phenomenal. And when you say top teams in the West, I'm assuming you're referring to Jazz, Clippers, Lakers, Jazz, Clippers. Lakers. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, yeah, I agree with you. I've been very impressed, pleasantly surprised with the Spurs this year. I remember when we were doing our preseason previews, I did not expect them to be like this. But one thing I did say was they need to embrace that young talent. And I think DeMar DeRozan and LaMarcus Aldridge, as well as, as well they have played this year, they've taken a slight step back and let those young guys shine a little bit more than last year and and years before that. And it has paid off tenfold. DeJounte Murray has taken a big step forward. Keldon Johnson has taken a big step forward. And a bunch of those other young guys who we've mentioned time and time again on the podcast have, have taken leaps, and they've done a great job rebuilding in the wake of Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili, and almost starting over in a way but using that same system, they still have Greg Popovich, who you mentioned, the greatest coach in the NBA, one of the greatest coaches in NBA history. He's got a great staff behind him. And with a crop of talent like this, I feel dumb for not having seen this coming. Because with a coach like Greg Popovich and the talent that they have, I should have known better than to say they weren't going to be successful this year. Because, you know, seeing them come into their own, it, it it's it's made sense with such a great coach like Greg Popovich. You know, I, I don't think that you are because I think the Spurs shouldn't be in this position. You know, I know that they are, but I don't think they should. You look at a lot of teams that have been underachieving in the West. The Nuggets are one. The Warriors, we thought were going to be better. The Pelicans, we thought we were, go- we were going to be better. We thought the Grizzlies were going to take that next step. They have not had Jaron Jackson yet, so that's put a pause in that. But... The Spurs, I mean, there are a lot of teams in Western Conference that are really good, which is why we thought the Spurs, not that the Spurs were going to be bad, but it was the West. If they were in the East, no doubt about it, they would have made it because it's the East. But in the West, it's a much different story. But what I found interesting is that they're 22nd in points per game, they're 12th in opponent points per game, and what that comes out to is that they score 110.9 points per game, so 111, and they give up 111.2 points per game. So they actually have a negative net rating on the year, even though they have a winning record. And I think the best part about the team is that they don't turn over the ball. They're first in turnovers, so they rarely turn over the ball. And this is not this is a team in the Spurs that has not fully embraced the three-point era. They are not chucking up threes. DeMar DeRozan is still playing in mid-range like he always did in his career. They are still playing fundamental fundamental and foundational basketball. They are playing different than the rest of the league. And I give them a lot of credit because losing Tim Duncan, losing Ginobili, losing Parker, losing Kawhi, which is the biggest loss of them all in this decade, um, they did not tank. They did not choose to trade DeRozan and LaMarcus Aldridge and blow the team up. They decided to compete, and they are competing, and now they're fifth in the West And I think a lot of teams should follow the same path because there's a lot of teams that like to lose, 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 and lose until they get the top picks like Philly did with Sam Hinkie 
and now you see them, and they still have nothing to show for it. Whereas San Antonio Spurs, they are actually giving their fans something to watch and look forward to every single night when they play. Yeah, it's tough to start from scratch in anything, and especially in the NBA, and you've seen it with teams who have tanked. So the Spurs have done what you would expect a first-rate organization like the Spurs to do. And, you know, there's a couple of organizations around the league who you would expect to do things the right way. The Spurs are one of them. They've done it. And Greg Popovich has put this franchise in great hands. I would imagine and assume that Becky Hammond is going to be the next in line once Greg Popovich decides to move on from coaching. I think she's going to make a spectacular head coach, you know, learning right under the tutelage of Greg Popovich. I think they're going to not even skip a beat in that transition when the day comes. The part that I would be interested to see is, you know, where they move forward from here. I think they could be a playoff team this year. I think they could upset a team in the first round, like you mentioned, just because they're so well-coached and they have a really nice crop of talent, a deep team. And although, you know, I'm interested to see what they can do this year, I'm more interested to see what the future looks like for them. You know, what happens with DeRozan and Aldridge and where do they go next? Because I really like this young core and I'm intrigued to see where they go from here. We're going to move on to the next topic. We're going to remain in Texas, though, because we're going to talk about the Dallas Mavericks. They started out the season very slow, but now they are starting to win more. I think in the last 10, they, they've won about seven or I, I don't know. I know that they have they've recently won on a winning streak. Seven so and three seven, in three the last, in the last 10. Will Luka Doncic lead the Dallas Mavericks to the playoffs? And that's another team we forgot to mention. We did not think the Spurs were going to be fifth in the West because we thought the Mavs were definitely going to be in the playoff race, but they are ninth currently. They're 16 and 16. They're one and a half game behind the Golden State Warriors. And what do you think? Do you think that the Mavericks will make the playoffs this season? I I, I do think they're going to make the playoffs. And although, you know, I might sound a little shaky on that pick, it's only because the West is still, even with teams struggling, still really good. And there's still a couple of really good teams on the outside looking in that could turn it around. Like I could see maybe the Pelicans or the Grizzlies turning it around just as well as I could see the Mavericks doing it. And then the teams on the inside, like who's falling out of here? Is it obviously the Jazz, the Lakers, the Clippers are locks. I think the Suns at 22 and 11 have put themselves in a really good spot looking forward to the second half of the year. And then it comes down to Spurs, Trailblazers, Nuggets, Warriors. I think the Nuggets have struggled, and they're starting to turn a corner a little bit. And when they do, they're a playoff lock. The Trailblazers, same thing. They struggled a lot earlier in the season. Now they're starting to play better basketball. They're a lock. So then it comes down to the Spurs, the Warriors, and the Mavericks for two spots. I think the Mavericks get in. But I am a little shaky on that prediction just because I'm basing it off of what I think they can be and not what they have been. I got to see them do it. You know, Kristaps is getting back from that injury, and I think as the season goes along, he will play better than he has over the last few weeks as much as people want to ship him off. We did a segment on it last week. I think it would be a mistake to trade him right now. His value is probably the lowest it's been in his career. I think he'll start to turn it around. And I think that will be one of the bigger reasons they do end up making the playoffs. The Dallas Mavericks will make the playoffs, and Luka Doncic is going to lead them to the playoffs like he did last season, having that breakout year. 
He's averaging 28, 8, and 9 this season, shooting 47% from the field, goal, from the field and 35% from three, which is a career high. He started in 29%, yeah. and he has gotten better, and now he's shooting 35% from three. He's hitting those tough shots, and we, ha- we forget quickly that the Mavericks last year had the best offensive rating in NBA history. I think losing Steven Salas contributed to their slow start this season, but I also think that they just started out slow. As simple as that sounds, no real explanation. They just started out slow. It's not something that any, that any fan should be worried about because they were last in the league in three-point percentage earlier in the year. Right now, they're 22nd, which means they took a 10 they took a 10-team leap to get to 22nd now. And when you look at Porzingis, his last 10 games, 21-8, and eight, shooting 39% from the field. Jalen Brunson is playing better. Tim Hardaway Jr. as the sixth man has been a revelation. Dorian Finney-Smith, I like him. Maxi Kleba, an underrated defender. I like this Mavericks team. I don't think that they should make a big splash move. And I think as long as you have Luka, you're going to make the playoffs. How much longer is is uh, Kelly Oubre going to be playing this well for Golden State? Can Golden State contain this level of play, maintain this level of play? Level of play? I'm not sure. Are the Spurs going to be this in the second half of the season? They can very well drop out and the Mavericks take a playoff spot. See, I'm very confident that the Mavericks will take a playoff spot because they have Luka. Luka's going to find ways to win because he's a winner. That's what he is. And in the next 10, 10 games, they face the Magic today. They face the Thunder, the Spurs, the Thunder. I mean, that's a for me, that, that could be a four-game win streak right there. Then you got the Nuggets, the Clippers twice, the Blazers twice, and then the Timberwolves. So a tough stretch there. But all in all, I think they can win those games. They're only one and a half game behind the eighth seed. So you go on a four-game win streak, you can very well take a playoff spot and now control your own destiny. And I think once the Mavericks get their foot on the gas and they, they're in control of their destiny, that's it. They're going to keep rolling from there. I think they started out the season slow, but it's nothing to worry about right now because they're playing phenomenal. Yeah, they've played a lot better. And like I mentioned, I think a lot of it is just getting into the flow of things. Kristaps Porzingis has only played, I think, 18 games coming back from that injury. And any player coming back from a major injury like he had is going to take some time to get back to form. The defense has been a lot better, and I think that's been a major reason of why they've been playing as well as they have. And Luka, like you said, is Luka. Any team with him on it is going to have a chance. And if I had to bet right now, do they make the playoffs or miss the playoffs, I would say they make the playoffs. I agree. Now we are going to shift to the football portion of this episode, the debate. Lamar Jackson versus Josh Allen. Who is the better quarterback? We thought there would be more quarterbacks in this debate. The 2018 class was Baker Mayfield, Darnold, Allen, Josh Rosen, and Lamar. To this point, Sam Darnold and Josh Rosen have been busts. Baker Mayfield is a good quarterback, but he's not on the level of Allen or Lamar. Lamar and Allen are the two superstars of this class. So what's your opinion? Who do you think is better between Josh Allen or Lamar Jackson? Even better question, who would you take? 
if you're starting the team, do you want Josh Allen or do you want Lamar Jackson to be your franchise quarterback? So if you're asking me, I'll frame this two different ways. If you're asking me who has been better to this point, I would say Lamar Jackson has had the better career to this point. Just he had the MVP season, and although I'll get into who I think I would take, I think Lamar Jackson has had the better career up to this point. But when you're talking long-term and who I would take to start my franchise with from here on out, personally, I would go with Josh Allen. Even though it's only been one season that he's shown he can play at an elite level, and that definitely concerns me. I would go with him just because you know he has that arm talent that I don't know Lamar Jackson has. I think he can get there, and I've been one of the biggest defenders of Lamar Jackson all season long. I don't think it's this huge gap that people make it out to be. And another reason I would go with Josh Allen over Lamar Jackson is durability. It, it worries me how much Lamar Jackson is out of the pocket putting himself in a position to be hit. Although he doesn't get hit as much just because he is so elusive, it definitely concerns me that he puts himself in such a position to be hit. Whereas, you know, even though Josh Allen can be a little bit reckless, sometimes he's more of a pocket passer. I like the step that Josh Allen took this year. And for that reason, and the arm strength, I would go with Josh Allen moving forward because I think he, I think he's more of a reliable option as you move forward. To this point in their career, it has not been close. Lamar Jackson has had the better career. Josh Allen has had one year where he had he put up a better season than Lamar, but for their careers, Lamar Jackson has passed for 7,000 yards, 68 touchdowns, 18 interceptions, has a 102 quarterback rating, 64 completion percentage, and to over 2,000 yards rushing over two years. He, he's had 1,000 yards rushing in 2019 and 2020. Um, and... The knock on him is that he's one and three in the playoffs right now, but he has a thirty and seven record in the regular season. Josh Allen has thrown for nine thousand seven hundred yards, sixty-seven touchdowns, 31, 31 interceptions, ninety quarterback rating, sixty-two percent completion percentage, twenty-eight and fifteen in the regular season, and two and two in the playoffs. And you also have to have to take into account that Josh Allen started his old rookie year while Lamar Jackson did it. If we are saying barring injury, who am I going to take? I'm taking Lamar Jackson. And you saw the leap that Josh Allen made. Josh Allen, from his rookie year to this to his second year, he took a major leap because he got in. He got Cole Beasley and John Brown, and the offensive line got better with the big signing of Mitch Morse. In 2020, they give him they give him a number one receiver, and he takes an even bigger leap because Stephon Diggs is there. But even with the leaps that he's taken, he's still very turnover prone. He had a lot of interceptions dropped this past season. I think Lamar Jackson takes care of the ball better. He's fixed his fumbling problem. And I cannot fairly judge Lamar Jackson to this point in his career because he's not had a number one wide receiver. He's had some great tight ends, Mark Andrews and Hayden Hurst. But who's your best wide receiver? Willie Sneed? You know, Willie Sneed is not even Cole Beasley. He's not even as good as Cole Beasley. Willie Sneed would go to the Bills and not even play. I mean, that's really how it is. John Brown, Cole Beasley, and I'd even say Gabriel Davis is better than uh, Willie Sneed. So that's the thing for me is that I, I'm not, I can't fairly judge Lamar Jackson because I think if he were to have an option like Stephon Diggs, we'd see a big breakout year. But even without that option, 
I mean, he found ways to be productive in that Greg Roman offense by being the best rushing quarterback that we've seen in league history. The first quarterback in the NFL to pass for 3,000 yards and rush for 1,000. I mean, he did some remarkable things in his MVP season. And Lamar Jackson, and I mean, Josh Allen this past season had an MVP-like season, but that MVP, that season was not even close to Lamar Jackson's MVP season. The edge you can give Josh Allen would be in the playoffs because he is 2-1-1 and 2-2 in the playoffs. He has thrown five touchdowns to only one interception, while Lamar has thrown three touchdowns to five interceptions in the playoffs. So in the playoffs, you know, you can tell me that, but the only reason you could even think about taking Josh Allen is because of that injury concern. But even with that, you know, Josh Allen does not slide. He does not run as much as Lamar Jackson, but when he runs, he does not slide. He does take hits. You know, he's very reckless as well when he runs the ball. So I think that exists with both of them, even though it does exist with Lamar a little bit more or way more, it does exist with Josh Allen too. Yeah, no, there's no question about it. And I think that, you know, if people were looking for like some volatile debate here, I think they came to the wrong place because I feel the same way that you do about Lamar. I think it's ridiculous how much people have underrated him after this season. I've compared him a couple of times to Giannis in the sense that he got the MVP, didn't have the success in the playoffs, and now everybody's turning on him because they were expecting him to be, you know, a one-man show that could lead his lead his team to a championship. But the fact of the matter is, you can't put him out there with the weapons that they've had on offense. I mean, you could look at some of the game film. They don't even run routes on some plays. Like, they're not even trying to get open. And like you said, if you gave him a Stephon Diggs, I would be very interested to see what Lamar Jackson can do. I think that's a huge portion of the Ravens' offseason this year, seeing who they can bring in to be that number one wide receiver, especially in such a deep receiver class. And I hope they do bring in an Allen Robinson-type receiver to give Lamar Jackson that weapon, and hopefully he could prove all the doubters wrong. But I, like you said, if we're talking about them up to this point in their career, Lamar Jackson has far and away had the better career. Moving forward, the only reason it's a question, durability, and I would also say I think Josh Allen has shown better arm talent, which to me lends him to a longer career and more of a chance to be a, a you know, a, I don't for for lack of a better word, a long term option at quarterback. I mean, for me, I think I think that's not to say I don't think Lamar Jackson can get there with the arm either. I think arm strength is is a little bit overrated because yes, if if a player has a strong arm then, you know, you rank him a little bit higher, but for me I'm I'm much more I'm much what's more important to me is accuracy, decision making and stuff like that. There have been a lot of players come out of the draft who have strong arms. I mean, Ryan Mallett had a really strong arm. Drew Locke had one had the strongest arm in that 2019 class out of Collar, Dwayne, and Gardner Minshew out of Daniel Jones as well. But Drew Locke is not gonna is not going to be a good NFL quarterback because he's not good at everything else. Even though Josh Allen is good at those things, I think Lamar when it comes to decision making is better. When he come, when it comes to accuracy, he's better. You know, so I think Lamar has the edge in those departments and I want to see him get a number one wide receiver. The other thing you could say is that Josh Allen has, hasn't had the offensive line Lamar has had. I mean, Lamar is MVP season had a great offensive line this past season. Not so great because Marshall Yonda did retire 
and Ronnie Stanley got injured. But for the most part, there's not an elite offensive lineman on that Bills offensive line. Mitch Morse is really good. He's not elite. There, Deion Dawkins is good. He's not elite. There is not an elite offensive lineman on that Bills offensive line, which is why they struggle to run the ball as well. So that's another argument that can go Josh Allen's way. But to this point, I mean, just Lamar can just do so many things. You can ask him to drop back and pass, and he'll win you games. You can ask him to run the ball, he'll win you games. He's just, he can do everything. And that's why I think I would just give the edge to Lamar Jackson. Yeah, that's the crazy thing to me. A lot of people criticize him for the amount that he runs, even though he's so successful with it. Like, why does it matter if he's running for 20 yards versus passing for 20 yards? It's getting the job done either way. Each each time picks you up a first down. So I don't understand why there's such a stigma on him running the ball as well as he does it. I mean, you look at that Titans game. He had some runs that literally won them the game, and people didn't give him credit for it because it was a run. They called him a running back. It's ridiculous. He threw 36 touchdowns his rookie year. You know, I, I feel like... Second. Second year. I feel like at this point, that narrative should be out the window. But I, I guess people see how well he runs the ball, and, you know, they get stuck on that. But I think that the narrative of him not being able to throw the ball is completely overblown. Lamar Jackson's contract is coming up, and right now there's been a report that they are far in terms of their contract negotiations because, you know, if you're Lamar Jackson, you are an MVP. You are looking at getting that Deshaun Watson, Mahomes, slash Russell Wilson type of money, and what do you feel about that? If you are the Ravens GM, are you giving Lamar Jackson that big of a contract? Where are you? Where do you stand in this? Well, I'm... I mean, I'm a little bit skeptical on giving anybody big-time contracts. Even when Patrick Mahomes signed his mega deal, one of my first thoughts was they're going to be in a really tough spot in five years when they have to re-sign a lot of that talent and build a team around him because football is a 53-man roster and you need 22 guys to to start play to start a level for you every week. And it's tough to fill out a roster when you're paying a guy half a billion dollars over 10 seasons. Um, but I would give Lamar Jackson what he wants. He's a franchise quarterback. There's no question in my mind. And although I think they need to put pieces around him, it would be worse to lose him and have the money than give him the money and have to penny pinch to, to fill out around him. You know, like it's a really good problem to have to be in a tough cap situation and have one of the better quarterbacks in the league rather than not have the quarterback and have all the money in the world. He's a great quarterback, but I would not give him Watson or Wilson or Mahomes type of money. I would not at all. I w- and if we're far in the contract negotiations, and so be it, because if anything, I could franchise Lamar, and I could have him under, playing under that for a while, but I'm not giving him big-time money. And even though I would take Lamar Jackson over Josh Allen, because I think he's been better to this point, Lamar Jackson has been one and three in the playoffs. He's had had stinkers against Tennessee his second year, against the Chargers his first year, and against the Bills this past year. He has not played up to his full potential. And yes, the number one wide receiver argument can be made, but at the end of the day, Lamar sometimes misses Reese. So I'm saying this. Because of his playoff record, because he's, he, he's thrown three touchdowns and five interceptions in the playoffs, I would not give him big-time money because 
when the lights are the brightest, how do you perform? And when I've seen him drop back over 40 times a game and have to really win games with his arm, come from behind when they are not dominating on the ground game, I have not seen the Ravens pull out wins. And in 2019, he had a 17.5% bad throw percentage. In 2020, that was 17.6. So obviously it was pretty similar, but still, there's sometimes Lamar just misses guys, especially down the field, especially outside the numbers. That's where he's more inaccurate. And he got pressured more in 2020. And what do you need if you're a quarterback, an offensive line? What can't you really get if you pay a, a quarterback big-time money? You can't build a team around it. You can't get him an elite offensive line. If Lamar doesn't have an elite offensive line, what is that going to turn into? That's going to turn into him running more. That's going to turn into them not being able to run that many design running plays because the offensive line is bad, them not being a great running team, them having to rely on Lamar Jackson's arm to win games. They probably won't be able to go out and sign number one wide receiver. They'd have to really hit on the draft. Their defense is going to take a huge hit as well. Because of that, I just wouldn't give Lamar Jackson big-time money. And the biggest question of them all, is he going to get injured? Because he has he's taken a lot of hits on a week-to-week basis. We've seen Cam Newton win the MVP, and it seems ever since then his career has went downhill. Is that going to happen with Lamar Jackson the more he keeps on taking these hits? Because of that, I wouldn't give Lamar Jackson that type of money. I wouldn't commit I wouldn't commit that type of money to Lamar Jackson and give him that type of contract. Mahomes got it because he won a Super Bowl. That's why. Wilson has won a Super Bowl. Watson has not won it, but this past season, he proved he deserved it with that dysfunctional organization in the Texans and him putting up those crazy numbers with a bad roster. I mean, he made guys like Chad Hansen guys to look out for on Sundays. Chad Hansen had a 100-yard receiving game. We don't even know who that is. That's Deshaun Watson. Could Lamar do the same? I don't think he could. I definitely do think Lamar has elevated this Ravens team, though. And... I'm I'm with you on the injury thing. The durability is definitely a concern. But for me, and, and if you're going to say franchise tag him, I'm with that. And, and that way you can look at it and see how much he progresses over the next year, next two years. I think that that would be a smart plan. But if you're talking about giving him a contract or not giving him a contract, I just wonder if you're going to find better at the quarterback position and where you're going to find it. Is it going to be through free agency, through the draft? And then you're relying a lot on your scouting team to find the new quarterback, which is the toughest position to replace on the field, in in my opinion. So I don't know. If it came to either giving him an extension or not giving him an extension, personally, I would give him the money. You could do it, but I will. It depends on the price tag. I wouldn't give him Mahomes money. I wouldn't give. I didn't even know if I would have given Mahomes Mahomes money because that is a oh, I would have given Mahomes Mahomes money. I mean, it's forty forty million dollars a year, forty to forty seven million. So, what do you think Lamar is gonna? What do you think Lamar is asking for? He's asking for that. That's exactly what I think he's asking I, for. I'm not giving him that, but I, I, it's tough because I don't think he deserve. I don't know that anybody outside of Mahomes and Watson, I don't even know. If, I, I I would say Wilson also deserves it. But outside of those three guys, I don't know that anybody in football deserves that kind of money. 
And that's not a knock I mean, on That's Lamar the quarterback Jackson, position. I, I will say this. If the Ravens do decide to pay him that much, they are not going to win a Super Bowl with Lamar Jackson. And I think they're going to use this year to fill it out because they're not going to, I don't think they're going to extend him this, this off season because if Lamar Jackson gets hurt, then that is probably going to change. It's probably going to change their minds on things. And hopefully he doesn't, but th- an injury, the, that injury concern with Lamar Jackson is very real. And because of that, I would be very hesitant to give Lamar Jackson big time money because I'm not sure how durable he's truly going to be. My question though, is anybody going to give him that kind of money? Yeah, like, I think I who who I don't know if he'll get that type of money. Yes, anywhere. he will. Yes, he will. Yes, he will. If if it's not, I mean, that's just me saying it. I think the Ravens are probably will give it to him, but he will get that money from a different a number of places. Dak Prescott is going to get big time money in free agency if he hits the open market from Washington. You know that's been a rumor. Lamar Jackson, former MVP, is definitely getting that type of money as long as he's healthy. He's not injured. He's going to get this type of money, like, no doubt about it. Now the next topic we're going to talk about is the Los Angeles Rams. They traded for Matthew Stafford earlier on. Uh, I think earlier this month they traded traded for Matthew Stafford. It was a big big time deal. Jared Goff to the Lions. Uh, do you how? What do you think the Rams' ceiling is with Matthew Stafford now at quarterback? Because last year they went ten and six. They had a twenty second ranked offense and the first ranked defense. People thought Jared Goff held that team back, and I think he did to an extent because you could just see it was not meshing well. But now the Rams have a quarterback who was considered to be a very talented quarterback, even though he has underachieved in his career. People are thinking this is a situation where Stafford is going to take off. What is what is the Rams' ceiling with Stafford at QB? I think they could be a Super Bowl team, and I thought they were a sleeper Super Bowl team last year towards the end of the season when that defense came alive. They're bringing back a lot of the same defense. Uh, obviously, they lost Brandon Staley, which will be a hole that they'll have to look to replace, so that'll be interesting to see how they figure out that situation, but the defense is going to be one of the best units in the league, and you have Sean McVay, who is one of the most creative play callers in the league. I'm excited to see what he can do with Matthew Stafford, who despite not putting the wins in the win column in Detroit, he was one of the more talented quarterbacks in the league, in my opinion. So now pairing him with McVay with a good running game with you know Cam Akers uh, and, and those receivers out wide, I'm really interested to see what they can do. I think they could be a Super Bowl team. I'm not that high on the Rams coming into this season because I think a team that everybody is sleeping on is the San Francisco 49ers. The 49ers are going to be back next season. The Seahawks are going to be back next season. That division is the toughest division in football. J.J. Watt signed with the Cardinals. So that division is going to be extremely tough. And Matthew Stafford, to this point, has not shown the ability to win big games. He has had fourth-quarter comebacks. He has had game-winning drives. But he has not won meaningful games. And a lot of people are giving him that pass, but I'm not going to give him that pass. I know he's a talented quarterback. I know I know he has one of the strongest arms. He's, you know, he. I think he's a great human being. I've read what he's written in the Player Tribune. But another guy who put up a lot of great stats in, in, in Washington, who's now in Minnesota, was Kirk Cousins. But Kirk Cousins can't win big games. Sometimes you can put up big-time stats, but not be able to win the big game. 
And now this free agency, Troy Hill is a free agent. The the Rams, you know, they got some holes to fill. They're not a perfect team right now. They got some holes to fill. They're way over the salary cap. So I don't know how they're going to make everything work. The offensive line is going to be regressing, especially since Andrew Whitworth is up there in age. Austin Blythe is a free agent. So there are a lot of holes to fill. John Johnson, the starting safety who's been phenomenal, is a free agent. They're not gonna they're not gonna be able to bring a lot of those guys back. And they don't have a first round pick. So they have to hit on these later picks in the draft. I'm not sure if they can do that. Matthew Stafford now has a running game. He has a defense. I mean, with the Detroit Lions, these were the defensive ranks. 32nd, 19th, 23rd, 27th, 15th, 3rd, one year in 2014, 23rd, 13th, 21st, 16th, 26th, and 32nd. So the defense was always bad. And that year in 2014, when they went 11-5, and Joe Lombardi was their offensive coordinator. And it's safe to say that Stafford was never on the same page as him. Stafford in 2014 threw 22 touchdowns and 12 interceptions with Lombardi as OC. Golden Tate and Calvin Johnson were starting receivers. And Lombardi got fired after a 1-6 start the very next year in, in 2015. Stafford threw 12 touchdowns and 9 interceptions. And then once Lombardi was fired... He threw 20 touchdowns and four interceptions with Jim Bob Cooter. So the years that Detroit had their best defense, Stafford didn't play his best, so they weren't able to maximize on that. This is a brand-new system, right? How is he going to fare in his first year in this McVay offense? Not only that, but Stafford has been good. He has put up great stats, but his knock is late-game interceptions, and he still throws them. Yeah, that is not going away from Stafford. Is it possible he's going to cost the Rams some games late because he throws an interception? Yes. Because of that, I'm not entirely sold. My team in the NFC West is the San Francisco 49ers. If they are healthy, if Jimmy G is healthy, they're going to win that division. Well, I mean, that division is, is going to be the toughest division in the league. Like you said, the Cardinals would be favored in a bunch of divisions across the league, and they're probably going to be picked to finish last in that division if not third I don't see them being selected any higher than third in that division and I'd like to you know come back to this when all the dust settles after free agency see how the Rams fill out those holes that you mentioned but I do trust Matt Stafford coming into the system he's a smart guy he's shown at the NFL level you know just reading about him he's a good football mind pairing him with McVay I think is going to be a really great marriage you know, and and maybe I'm wrong, but I think he'll be a good fit with the Rams. He he has that defense, like you said, that he hadn't had in Detroit with Matt Matt Patricia the last few years. That defense has been pitiful, and he hasn't really had a chance to you know excel with that with that team. So I think that coming to the Rams with this supporting cast, that's better than I think he's ever had in Detroit. I think it's going to be a great situation for him to at least prove himself. Like this will be a shot to prove that he's not just a loser and he he can really be a winning quarterback at the NFL level and he was just in a bad situation. I mean, Stafford has put up great stats. I think he is a really good quarterback. I think he's a great quarterback. But there are a lot of great quarterbacks in the NFL. I don't think Stafford is a top 10 quarterback right now in the NFL. And because of that, you know, how far can a a non-top 10 quarterback take you if you don't have the loaded roster for it to happen, and especially a guy who does not take the take care of the ball like Matthew Stafford. 
there are legitimate concerns. I said this when the trade happened. I don't think going from Goff to Stafford was a crazy difference. Like, I think Goff is here. I think Stafford is here. I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's a discrepancy like this big. I don't think it's like going from Watson to go. I don't think it's like going from Watson to Goff. Like, it's not like that. Stafford, even though he has been losing and people, you know, are giving him a lot of excuses for losing in Detroit. He's had he's had his hand in losing a lot of those games and those interceptions. His interceptions are really high for the most part. So because of that, I'm not sure where they're going to be. You know, I would I want Stafford to succeed because I've been a Stafford defender. But in this division with the Rams, 49ers, I mean, Stafford is the third best quarterback in the division. I think it's Wilson Kyler. Stafford and Jimmy G are really neck and neck to me. I would take it really d- just depends either one of them because I really I'm really high on Jimmy G and I think he's going to have a bounce back season this upcoming year. So because of that, I just don't know where the Rams fit. Nine and seven in 2019, ten and six in 2020. Now we'll see what they do in 2021. But I'm not I'm not extremely sold on where the Rams are going to be. Yeah, I, and I'm not saying they're a lock to be a Super Bowl team by any means, but I would feel you know better about saying they're going to make the Super Bowl than saying they're going to miss the playoffs, personally. Even as tough as that division is, I think that if for no other reason than the defense, which has been consistently solid no matter what's going on there, I think the defense will at least help propel them, even if Stafford struggles a little bit. And I think it'll be... a I don't know if it'll be a seamless transition, but I think it will be a good transition, and I do think that Matthew Stafford's talent will elevate that offense. The defense was 15th, ranked 15th in 2019. They were ranked first because of Brandon Staley. I think he had a huge part in that. Troy Hill also ascended. Troy Hill is probably gone. John Johnson is probably gone. Not having Brandon Staley, Troy Hill, and John Johnson, I think – they're not going to be. They're not going to be the first ranked defense next season. No, I don't think they have to be the first ranked defense. But going from having the thirty uh, first, thirty second ranked defense in Detroit to a, I think it's pretty safe to assume the Rams are going to have a, at no, least. No, they'll a have. Top a, I think they'll have. They'll defense. have a top fifteen defense. But even so, you know, even so, I, I don't think just because Stafford's going from the thirty second ranked defense to the to the fifteenth. He's going to be so much better. I look more towards the offense. And and Detroit, even though they were they didn't have good defenses, they had a pretty good offense. They had a pretty good offense. Um, last season, I was watching the game versus the Cardinals, the season opener. They blew a lead versus the Cardinals, and Stafford almost threw a, a pick six. But it was dropped. But it would have been a pick six. He has those moments. And I think Rams fans are going to figure out those moments sooner rather than later. I think the good outweighs the the cons with Stafford, but at the end of the day, you don't have first round picks. It's gonna you're, they're banking that Stafford is what everybody has been propping him up to be, yeah, and I, what they believe he can be. In all fairness, they haven't been picking in the first round for I think eight seasons, or they won't have picked in the first round for eight seasons. I think they haven't picked in the first round for four years now, going into this upcoming draft, four or five seasons going into this upcoming draft. So. You know, they've done a pretty good job finding talent in the later rounds. I think that the biggest improvement, as much as I think the defense will be a big improvement, I think the biggest improvement is coaching. And I'm really excited to see what Sean... I said it earlier this year, I think that it it would be really interesting to see what McVay could do with a more talented quarterback. And I'm excited to see, you know, this is like like going in Madden 
and, and getting to pick out your roster. He's finally getting a chance to play with a you know a more talented quarterback. I'm excited to see what he can draw up and and let him loose. Yeah, we'll see what McVay does. Now, with their division rival made a big time move earlier today. J.J. Watt decided to sign with the Arizona Cardinals. He put it out himself. He was his own source. He wore a Cardinals t-shirt and tweeted out the picture and posted it on his social media platforms. The contract is worth $15 million per year. It's a two-year deal for $31 million. He is now reuniting with his former teammate, DeAndre Hopkins, and he's going to be in that Vance Joseph defense. And I think this was a huge pickup for the Cardinals. You look at J.J. Watt's stats in 2020, he had five sacks, 52 tackles, 14 tackles for loss, and 17 quarterback hits. His sack numbers were not there because he got double teamed the entire year. The Texans have nobody else on that defensive line that can get after the quarterback. So Watson was facing a lot of double teams. And because of that, the sack numbers were low. But he still had an 85 PFF grade, which is elite according to their scale. And for me, I mean, you got Chandler Jones. You got J.J. Watt. This is the best pass rushing duo in the entire NFL now. And Chandler Jones had 19 sacks in 2019. He's had double-digit sacks in every year since 2015. 2020, he was injured. He only played five games. And the most sacks since 2012, Jones with 97, and second is Watt with 95.5. The only question for me is injuries because J.J. Watt has had some troubles staying healthy in the past. Chandler Jones is coming off an injury. Uh, so we'll see what happens there, but... If they can stay healthy, they are going to be the best pass rushing duo in the entire NFL. This almost guarantees that Hassan Reddick will not be back. But, oh my gosh, they were the 12th ranked defense last year. Chandler Jones missed basically the entire year. They were 10th in yards allowed, 5th in sacks, and an 8-8 eight and eight record. With J.J. Watt and Chandler Jones being healthy, this team can take such a big leap. Their core now is J.J. Watt, Chandler Jones, Jordan Hicks, who I love as a pass coverage linebacker and a tackler, Isaiah Simmons, who in his second year I think is going to take that next step, Buda Baker, Byron Murphy Jr. They got a lot of young guys who are ready, and this almost guarantees Hassan Reddick won't be back. They don't need to bring him back because they got J.J. Watt now, but this was a big-time move. I thought J.J. Watt was going to the Packers, the Bills, or the, or the Browns. Yeah. I did not <laughs> expect the Cardinals at all. His Peloton bio. What what was that all about? It wasn't him. It was <laughs> it was fake. It was fake. It wasn't him. Um, it, kind of like going off what we were just talking about with the Rams. It's just the division that that's tough because obviously this is a great signing for the Cardinals. You kind of covered everything there was to say, but the main point being uh, opposite Chandler Jones is going to create the scariest pass rush in football. And it's going to totally change the landscape of the division. Now you look at a team like the 49ers and them either bringing back Trent Williams or shoring up that offensive line becomes of, of at least even more importance than it was before because now you know you're going to be facing those two two times in this upcoming season. And it gives the Cardinals a legitimate pulse in the division that I don't think they would have had if they didn't go out and make a splash like this in free agency. You know, I... I can honestly see them making a run at a playoff spot now, whereas before a move like this in that division, I don't know if they would have had a chance just because of how much talent there is 
that they would have to be playing for half the season. Um, still, even with the signing, Kyler Murray is going to have to maybe not take a jump, but at least remain consistent over the course of the season. I thought Kyler started out this past season really well, but then as the season went on, he kind of fell off a little bit, and it led to the Cardinals not making the playoffs when I thought they should have been a playoff team. So Kyler has got to take that next step where he can consistently be you know, the quarterback we know he is, which I think he struggled with that consistency a, lit to, a, a bit towards the tail end of last season. So it, it, now it's some added pressure on Kyler. The, the Cardinals are kind of showing they're going all in right now, and they need Kyler to take that next step if they want to compete in this division with the teams around them. I mean, you just look at the Rams with Stafford, the Seahawks with Wilson. Kyler's got to play at that elite level this upcoming year. I think Kyler kind of... Uh... Being inconsistent is the combination of being a young quarterback and Cliff Kingsbury being a young play caller. He showed a lot of his inexperience during the Cardinals season last season. And this is the thing that worries worries me about this move that they made to go out and sign J.J. Watt. They did bring in a great future Hall of Famer in J.J. Watt, but at $15 million per year, one, they didn't have enough cap. They didn't have a bunch of cap space to play with going to the offseason. Now you sign J.J. Watt. I mean, they need a number two receiver next to DeAndre Hopkins. Larry Fitzgerald is not what he once was. Christian Kirk is not a number two to me. He he makes too many questionable um, decisions when he runs with the ball. Sometimes he runs backwards. And they don't have some real tight ends. You know, I, I think Max Williams was, he's okay. Dan Arnold is okay. But they aren't real game changers. Because of that, I just don't know you know, what they're going to do. If they can get some guys in the draft and maybe it happens, but I mean, even these past couple of drafts, they drafted Andy Isabella, who I thought was a great pick at the time, but he's not panned out to this point in the NFL. So the draft is always a toss up in free agency. Maybe they can sign a guy like Tim Patrick. I would like that. Or just another guy to take the load off the Andrew Hopkins, but they need some more offensive weapons. I think that defensive is fine. It's really about just surrounding Kyler Murray with weapons. I think their offensive line isn't as bad as people would like to make it seem like it is. I think they're an okay offensive line. The priority is getting them weapons because it's an air raid offense. Because it's an air raid offense, you don't really need great offensive linemen because you're getting the ball quickly out of your hands anyway and the field is spread out. Because of that, you're not going to get a lot of people trying to rush you as heavily as they would in other systems. So they just need to get guys who can make things, um, create things with space, screens, whatever it may be, running short routes. They need to get guys like that. But also they need to address the cornerback position because Patrick Peterson is not there. So you need, a, you need to sign a draft guy too. So there are still holes on this Cardinals defense and offense that they have to fill. We'll see what happens. Yeah, the good thing is... I do think this draft is fairly deep at the wide receiver position, and I think there's some good options later in the draft at the cornerback position. But I, I kind of, I said it for Kyler, and it kind of goes towards the whole organization. There's more pressure on that building now to succeed. They put themselves on a two-year clock, you know, and I don't want to say it's a two-year window of success, and then that's it. But it's going to be really disappointing if they are not even competing in these two seasons with J.J. Watt after they just threw him a bag. So now, with that money off the board for them, the draft becomes of utmost importance. You're going to have to find a legit number two that can come in and from day one make an impact. 
Otherwise, you're throwing Kyler to the Wolves. You're throwing Cliff Kingsbury to the Wolves, and you're asking them to take a leap without giving them any improvements on the offensive side of the ball. So everybody's job in that building got harder today, even though it was a good signing. It put so much pressure on everybody in that organization to succeed even more over the next two seasons. Whereas, you know, you would have had a little bit more leeway where you could have spent this $30 million over the next two years in free agency uh, on those holes. But I do think it was a good signing. I just think it, you know, it, it presses everybody a little bit more. I think I think the pressure would have been there regardless because Kyler Murray in two years is due for a contract. Mm-hmm. So regardless, it was a two-year window because you have to pay Kyler Murray sooner rather than later. So because of that, I think all they're doing is try to maximize their window with Kyler Murray. We'll see how far they can go, but the NFC West is the toughest division in football. 49ers will be healthy. The Seahawks are still there, and the Rams got Stafford. So we'll see how far they go, but I'm, I'm ready to say that I think the best team in the NFC West will be the 49ers, then the Cardinals, and then wow. the Seahawks and the Rams, depending on that. I think it's possible every team has a winning record because they're that good of a division. But, you know, I'm really high on the 49ers coming into this season. I that's, really am. That's the thing. I could see almost any team winning that division, and I could see almost any team being the worst team in that division, depending on how things go this year. But I think any of them would be the favorite in almost any division in football. Almost any division in football. So now going on to our final two topics of the episode, we are going to talk about the Green Bay Packers and their offseason. This is your 2021 offseason preview. If you are new to this segment, it is basically a preview of their offseason. We're going to talk about their roster cuts, who they should cut, their projected cash space restructures, who they should sign, who they should draft, things of that nature. So starting off, they are $11 million over the cap, so they need to free up some cap space. You can cut Preston Smith and save $8 million. Dean Lowry clears up, I think, about 3 to $4 million, somewhere around there. Uh, but the best way to create cap space for the Packers right now is by restructuring contracts and extending some players Aaron Rodgers, if you do a maximum restructure, they'd clear up $13.6 million in cap space. So that's going to backload a lot of his money, which I'm not sure if the Packers want to do. If they want to maximize the Super Bowl window, then they will. But that's what would have to happen. They'd have to extend it of Devontae Adams. His cap, his cap number this season is going to be $16 million. He's a free agent next year. If, they extend him, they will clear up $7 million. So if they can extend him before the start of next year, they'll clear up $7 million. Then Zadarius Smith, his roster bonus can be converted to a signing bonus. That would free up $2.5 million. And an extension for Zadarius Smith could clear up up to $12 million. So I think they should extend Devontae Adams and Zadarius Smith because if they do, then they're going to have $19 million in cap space, plus Aaron Rodgers' restructure, maximum restructure. That's plus $13.6, plus Preston Preston Smith being cut. They could have about $32.9 million in cap space going into the offseasons off of these restructures and extensions. So that's what we are going to be playing with in regards to free agency. So 
These are their best pe- best pending free agents: Corey Lindsay, Aaron Aaron and Aaron Jones, Lane Taylor, Mercedes Lewis, Christian Kirksey, Rick Wagner, Kevin King, Robert Tunyon, Alan Lazard, and Jamal Williams. In my opinion, I would let Corey Lindsley and Jones walk. Yeah, I would love to have Lindsley back. But just for the price tag and considering their money situation, I, and obviously it depends on how much money they clear up, but with their current money situation, I think he'll get a pretty solid contract somewhere else. So I think he'll be gone. I'm definitely letting Aaron Jones walk. He's a really good running back, but I'm not high on paying any running backs big money, and especially on an Aaron Rodgers team with, you know, I think you could if you're going to bring back a running back, I would bring back Jamal Williams for his price tag. I think would be a much better value option. Um if you're not going to bring back Lindsley, I think it wouldn't be a bad idea. If you wanted to bring back Lane Taylor, I think it would be a little bit cheaper and could Thanks. still fill that hole. Um, and then I think two other guys I would look into bringing back are Alan Lazard and Robert Tunyon, just because you want to keep those weapons around Aaron Rodgers as much as possible. It's already a hole that you're looking to fill. So I would say bring back the guys who I think produced pretty well for them this past season. So for me, I mean, Corey Lindsley for me is out. You know, he's a great center, but I would just slide Elton Jenkins to the center spot because he can play center. Corey Lindsley is going to be probably the highest paid offensive lineman out of this crop of players. Well deserved. Outside of Trent Williams and probably Brandon Scherf or uh, Joe Thune, but he's going to get paid. Aaron Jones probably is going to Miami, going to get a big contract there. Let him go. Running backs are not worth it. Don't pay them. Lane Taylor, I'll bring back. Mercedes Lewis is old. Christian Kirksey, he can walk. Rick, Rick Wagner, he can go. Kevin King, uh, he left a sour taste <laughs> in my mouth after that NFC Championship yeah. game, so he can go. Robert Tunyon, Alan Lazar, Jamal Williams, and Lane Taylor, I would all keep. And Robert Tunyon, I would not extend him long-term because I think his price tag could be a little pricey. What I'd do instead is I'd give Robert Tunyon a first-round tender, which this offseason would be $4.7 million. What that means if you guys don't know what a first-round tender means, what that means is that if any team decides to sign Robert Tunyon, not only can you match the offer, but if they do sign him, you can get a first-round pick in return for them signing Robert Tunyon. So I'd put a tender on him. So let's say we re-sign, we we give Tunyon the first-round tender that is worth $4.7 million. We are now left with $28.13 million in cap space and... I said I would bring Alan Lazard, but it depends because Devin Funches is going to be back for the Packers. So it really depends if you want to keep Alan Lazard because I think Devin Funches could do similar things, but positions of need, tackle, cornerback, inside linebacker, wide receiver, a wide receiver two, and a running back. See, for me, you got some tackled options. Matt Filer from the Pittsburgh Steelers, DeMar Dotson who played for the Broncos, Mike Remmers, who's a pretty good offensive lineman. Then at center, Ted Carras, Matt Skura, who I'm not so high on. I, I like Ted Carras, though. And then at guard, Lane Taylor, I'd re-sign him, but you could go Brian Winters or DJ Fluker. Then at wide receiver, maybe the Packers want to bring in a veteran in A.J. Green and see what he has left on a $6 million deal. That's his projection right now. You could bring in Adam, wow. hum- you could bring in Adam Humphreys, who was just cut a really great slot receiver who can find ways to get open, that would be huge. Danny Amendola, really cheap, but a veteran presence, brings leadership, and can get open as well. 
Keelan Cole, Kendrick Bourne, Tim Patrick, or they can just re-sign Alan Lazard. And that inside linebacker for me, I think the money move here is to make is to sign Avery Williamson. Avery Williamson is a really good inside linebacker, and that's what the Packers need. Their run game has been exposed time in and time out. Because of that, they need a guy who's a solid linebacker. Avery Williamson would be perfect, former pro bowler. But if they want to go on the cheap side, they could sign a guy like Neville Hewitt, who was pretty good with the Jets this past season, or they could sign a guy like Denzel Perriman from the Chargers. And now you go to cornerbacks. What's important to note here is that Jerry Gray, the Packers' secondary coach, is the former Minnesota Vikings secondary coach. So a reunion with Xavier Rhodes could be in play, or Mackenzie Alexander coming from the Bengals could be in play. There are different options. I would sign Mackenzie Alexander because he's younger, and I think he gives you more versatility. But there are a lot of ways to go. So in my dream offseason for the Packers, I'd sign Avery Williamson, Mike Remmers to fill the tackle spot, Mackenzie Alexander, Matt Skura to fill the center spot, and that's $21 million in total to get those guys in the building. Yeah, I love Avery, the Avery Williamson shot. I think it would be a great fit. He was really good for the Jets before he got injured, and then he played a role for the Steelers late in the season. Um, for the offensive line, I would look at bringing Lane Taylor, Lane Taylor back rather than going out and exploring the free agent pool just because of the money situation. Um, at the corner spot... Do you think Patrick Peterson would take a, a big enough pay cut to go and join a potential Super Bowl contender? See, I'm not sure. He's made a lot of money in his career, so he probably could. And if he does, that would be huge because I think they could afford it if he does do that. If they could figure out a way to swing that, I think that would be a huge upgrade for them. And, you know, Kevin King can walk if you can bring in Patrick Peterson. But I think the wide receiver position is interesting, and that is the one that I would target more than anything in free agency. You listed a bunch of names. They obviously can't shop at the top of the list, but we've said it with a bunch of different uh, a bunch of different previews so far this year. Um, even if you can't shop at the top of the list, those top guys are going to impact the, the amount that some of the lower-tier guys are getting, and the lower-tier guys this year are, are also a solid group due to the top group being so high. So I think the wide receiver pool is big, and... You know, you listed a bunch of great targets to look at. I would definitely target that as the the number one biggest need of free agency just because you want to make that guy happy. Yeah, exactly. You don't want him being upset going into next offseason. It's about helping out Aaron Rodgers. I don't think a wide receiver two is that important because I think they were one of the most efficient offenses last season. If they can make that defense truly elite, I think they'll be fine. They will be fine. They need to make that defense elite to be great. I think NVS took a step forward last season. Alan Lazard showed flashes. Robert Tunyon was one of the top tight ends in the league. Because of that, I'm pretty fine with the offense. But then you look at the draft. They have the 29th pick. You can go linebacker. You can go tackle. You can go corner. You can go running back if you really want to. Or you can go receiver. For me, I'm going linebacker, I think, with the 29th pick. They should pick up Nick Bolton. Uh, I think they play a 3-4. What that means is that they're going to have two inside linebackers. So you need a guy to pair up Avery Williamson with. I think Nick Bolton would be the perfect fit. Then in the second round, you could target guys like Tyson Campbell or Greg Newsome, the second, a cornerback, or Aaron Robinson, 
in the third round, Amari Rodgers. Amari Rodgers is the wide receiver from Clemson. What people don't know about him is that his father is T. Martin. T. Martin was the the, the almost last quarterback picked ahead of Brady. He was actually in the <laughs> Brady Six, but he's a great wide receivers coach. He's developed guys like Nelson Aguilar, Juju Smith-Schuster, Randall Cobb. The list goes on. So he's a good receivers coach. He would be a good guy. Amari Rodgers would be ready to go day one in the NFL. And maybe they could target another linebacker later in the draft, Jamin Davis out of Kentucky. He's a very rangy linebacker. He can cover tight ends, cover some receivers, cover running backs. I think he's the a top five inside linebacker in this class, so that would be a great way to go. And maybe a tackle, Walker Little, would be another guy. They, they have two fourth-round picks because one is compensatory. So – you can go a lot of ways in this draft class. If you want to go with tackle with a 29th pick, Jalen Mayfield is an option, but they have a lot of options here to go in the draft. Yeah, when I was originally looking at that 29th pick, it was a couple of weeks back because I was looking at ways that they could you know, put some weapons around Aaron Rodgers. I was hoping Rashad Bateman, but now his stock has really started to shoot up a little bit over the past couple of weeks, so I don't think he'll be available there. Um uh, maybe a guy like Kadarius Tony out of Florida could be an option, but personally, I would consider going cornerback if you're not able to make a move like the Patrick Peterson one. Um, Asante Samuel Jr. is a guy we've talked about a couple times, or if you wanted to look later in the draft, a guy like Sean Wade out of Ohio State is an option. Um, at that linebacker position, a name that I think they should look at is Jabril Cox out of LSU. I think he's very versatile. He would fit well in the system. Um, and then, And then... I think a running back they could get later on in the draft that could maybe not fill the hole of Aaron Jones, but if you don't want to keep Jamal Williams around, you want to go with A.J. Dillon and bring in a second running back. Kenneth Gainwell from Memphis, he's had a couple great seasons there with the Tigers. I think he would. I think he's going to make the transition to the NFL level nicely, and I think bringing in rookie running backs is a great path to success in the NFL because you should never pay running backs. So this is my potential depth chart for the Green Bay Packers going into the next season. Aaron Rodgers, A.J. Dillon, slash Jamal Williams, Devontae Adams, Devin Funches, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, Robert Tunyon, David Bakhtiari, um, Brian Winters. I have them signing Brian Winters, Elton Jenkins, Lane Taylor, and Mike Remmers, or Billy Turner could start there. Then on defense, I'd keep Dean Lowry, Kenny Clark, Rashawn Gary, Zadarius Smith, Avery Williamson, Nick Bolton, Jairi Alexander, Mackenzie Alexander, Greg Newsom II, Adrian Amos, and Darnell Savage. I think this defense can be an elite group. I mean, Rashawn Gary, I think, is going to take another step with Zadarius Smith, Kenny Clark, Avery Williamson, a great veteran with a young guy, Nick Bolton, coming in. I think they'd make a great duo. And Jairi Alexander and Mackenzie Alexander, we know Jairi is going to lock up whatever side of the field he's on. Mackenzie Alexander can hold his own as a second corner, would be really good. And Greg Newsom, the second, just a corner drafted to see what he has. I think this defense can be elite, and this would help out Rodgers a lot. But if you want to go the wide receiver route and get a guy, I can I can understand that. I think Rashad Bain will probably be there at the 29th pick. You think he will? I don't think he's going to go top 20. No. Wow. No. I don't think receivers are... Going that high. Last year, we thought Jerry Judy, CD were going top 10. They didn't go top 10. You know, Jerry Judy went 15. CD Lamb went later. Because of that, I don't think Rashad Bateman is going in the first round. I think 
he's going early in the second probably, but I don't think he's going to be a first-round pick in my, in my opinion. I don't think he will. He'll be a second-rounder. I think he'll be a really good second-round pick for whoever's able to get him. Yeah, I think he'll, he's going to be an okay receiver. And, yep, that's my dream offseason for the Packers. Hopefully they can pull it off. We'll see what happens with these restructures, hopefully, because I think the window on Aaron Rodgers is closing. He has about maybe one or two more years before they try to move on to Jordan Love, so we'll see what happens there. If he even wants to come back after the season. You know, that was that was one of the topics this offseason was, you know, he wasn't happy and, you know, maybe not something this offseason, but it's something to monitor going into the next offseason. So this is an, a, a season to obviously you want to win to win, but you want to win and surround Aaron Rodgers with talent so you can avoid him being unhappy next offseason. So now we are going to talk about the 2021 Chicago Bears offseason. We're going to preview the offseason and they have $2.5 million. They're $2.5 million over the cap right now. Uh, they just they just cut Buster Screen, which was a guy I had them cutting. That would free up about $5 million. So now they're about like $3 million over. But they can cut Charles Leno Jr. for $9 million, Jimmy Graham for $7 million, and Javon Wims for $2 million. This is unpopular, but... They could cut Akeem Hicks for $10.5 million, cut or trade him. I think Akeem Hicks is a very good player, but I'm not sure if I'd keep him at $10.5 million. That's really something they'd have to decide. They got to get more offensive talent on that team. So because of that, I'm skeptical of keeping a defensive tackle at a $10.5 million price point. But I think I'd move this defense to a 4-3 defense. Khalil Mack is getting older in age. So is Robert Quinn. Because of that, I think they'd be much better as uh, defensive ends than outside linebackers. So I'd move this defense to a 4-3, put Roquan Smith at the inside linebacker spot, Danny Trevathan at an outside linebacker spot because he has lost some speed. So I changed that. But they're pending free agents right now. Allen Robinson, which is the biggest one, Trubisky, Cordero Patterson, Roy Robertson-Harris, Barkevius Mingo, Deshaun Gibson, Tashawn Gibson, Jermaine Fetty, uh, Cairo Santos, Eddie Pinheiro, Brent Urban, Rashad Coward, and Mario Edwards. Yeah, I think Allen Robinson is the name that jumps off the paper. Um, if you can bring him back, you bring him back. There's no question about it. I think he's been one of the most underlooked receivers of the past few years, but the problem is I don't know if he's going to want to come back. I don't think he will come back because of the quarterback situation, which I think is going to be one of their biggest question marks this offseason. Do you bring Mitch Trubisky back? Personally, you know, I, I don't know what their outlook is at quarterback. I don't think the Mitch Trubisky is the guy of the future for them. I think they should start looking elsewhere. Um, you know, if they can make a Deshaun Watson trade happen, obviously go out and do that, and that would make bringing back Allen Robinson a much more realistic possibility. I don't think that's a realistic, you know, I don't think that would happen in, in, in the real world. So, you know, I think obviously you have to move on from Allen Robinson, unfortunately. I don't think there's too many guys on here that are super important to bring back, especially with their cap situation. Um, a guy like Roy Robertson Harris is a guy that I would think about bringing back. Uh, Cordell Patterson plays, you know, kind of Swiss Army Knife role for them. I think he would be a nice addition to bring back. But I don't think there are too many guys on here that, are pressing to bring back, especially with their money situation. I mean, for me, 
even with the cuts, let's say we keep Akeem Hicks, they'd have about $20 million in cap space. Allen Robinson is probably going to demand that a year. So I am not bringing back Allen Robinson. As crazy as that sounds, I'm not bringing him back. He's going to be way too expensive, and they need to fill way more holes on a roster before they figure out, uh, before they bring a receiver who's going to be, who's going to cost that much. So for me, I'm re-signing Cordero Patterson because he's the best special teamer in the game right now, special team returner, kick returner in the game. He is the best. Roy Robertson Harris, I'd bring him back. Santos, one of the best kickers in the NFL last season, I'm bringing him back. Tashawn Gibson had a really good year last year. I'm bringing him back. And Rashad Coward, I'm bringing him back, bringing him back as well. Positions of need, quarterback, wide receiver, offensive tackle, and a slot corner. So at quarterback, they can go Jacoby Brissett or they can trade for Sam Donald. I don't think they're going Jacoby because they have Nick Foles. Nick Foles will most likely be the starter. And maybe they trade for Sam Donald. I'm still not sure. I don't I don't think they go that route. I think the Washington football team is much more likely to trade for Sam Donald. Then at wide receiver, you got guys like Tyra Williams, who hasn't been able to stay healthy, but when he is healthy, he's a really good receiver and if you can get him on a really cheap deal to come play for the for the Bears, I think he can have a really good season. You look at Sammy Watkins, Brashard Perriman, Adam Humphreys, Corey Davis, Keelan Cole, Demarcus Robinson, Rashard Higgins, Tim Patrick, Zach Paschal. There are a lot of good receivers, even though if you don't have number one in, Rob, in Allen Robinson coming back, this receiving core can be okay. I mean, I think Darnell Mooney has upside to be a high-level number two a low-end number one because I think Darnold Mooney is a really good receiver. I'm not too sold on Anthony Miller, but if they can bring in a good receiver in free agency, I think that would help them a lot. So then at tackle, Russell Okun, Kelvin Beacom, DeMar Dotson, Matt Filer, Mike Remmers, Taylor Martin, and at slot corner, Brian Poole, Mike Hilton, Kwan Williams, Troy Hill, and Cameron Sutton. So in my dream scenario for bringing in free agents, if I'm the Bears, I'm bringing back Tim Patrick and I'm bringing back and I, I mean, I'm signing Tim Patrick and I'm signing Cameron Sutton to be my slot corner. So all in all, Tim Patrick will line up next to Darnell Mooney. I'm going to look to address the wide receiver position in the draft as well. And Cameron Sutton lined up next to Kyle Fuller and Jalen Johnson would be one of the better cornerback trios in the entire NFL. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned I think offensive line is a more important position, at least in wide receiver on the offensive side of the ball, and I also don't think they're going to figure out the quarterback situation this offseason just because their pick doesn't put them in a position to figure it out with a first-round talent that can step in and play from day one. There's really not a lot of realistic options in free agency or through the trade at this point unless you want to go with Sam Darnold, but personally, even as a Jet fan and a guy who thinks – Sam Darnold could turn it around in a in a good situation. I don't think it makes sense for them to give up the capital to get a guy like Sam Darnold. At that point, you might as well just bring back Trubisky because you're bringing in a, a, pro, a project. So I don't think that would make much sense for them. So I think quarterback is going to have to wait unless they want to go later on in the draft. Um, offensive line, a lot of guys you mentioned. One guy that you didn't mention, Alejandro Villanueva, was a guy I was thinking maybe they could bring in. But you know, I think shoring up that offensive line is a huge position of need and something they need to take care of this offseason. Um, 
wide receiver, like you mentioned, it probably would make more sense to go through the draft, especially, you know, you're losing Allen Robinson and you're not going to be able to find somebody of that caliber with the money that you have. So I think it makes more sense to go through the draft, try and find a stud that can replace, maybe not replace Allen Robinson, but eventually replace Allen Robinson on a rookie deal. Um, and there's a couple other positions in need, but I, I think they have to go bargain bin shopping just because they don't have the cap space to go out and get big name guys. See, for me, I think the offensive line isn't that much of a problem. Like I, I know they want to get younger at tackle. Uh, Charles Leno probably gets cut, but he had an okay year last year. Bobby Massey, I think, is a good tackle. Cody White here at guard played really well. I think their center. Um, Sam Mustafer was pretty okay. I mean, he's a really young player, so he's going to only keep getting better. And James Daniels is not too good, but he's manageable. For me, the only way you move off of Charles Leno is you get a younger and better tackle. Russell Okung is a better tackle, but he's 33. Yeah. It makes no sense. Alejandro Villanueva, yes, he's a good tackle. He's been one for his career, but he's 38. He's nearing retirement. So I'm not sure if I'd go that route. I, I might just stick with what I have and draft the tackle in the draft because this is a loaded tackle draft. So I don't think I'd address the tackle position in free agency. I just look at the draft and they have the 20th pick in the first round, the second round, the third, fifth and sixth round. This is what I'm going to say. If Mac Jones is there at the 20th pick, you draft Mac Jones. No doubt about it. You draft. If Mac Jones is there at the 20th pick, you draft him. Do I think he will be there? Probably not. And, but if he is there, you draft Mac Jones no matter what. You get him to be that quarterback because I think he's the best bang for your buck at that 20th overall pick. He can't turn into a very good quarterback. But if he's not there, Christian Darisaw at left tackle or at any tackle spot, he would be a good fit there. You could Then you maybe Charles Leno gets cut if you bring in Christian Darisaw or you can have Darisaw learn on a Charles Leno. It can go either way. Trey Lance, if you want to trade up for him, maybe you'll see what happens. Elijah Vera Tucker and Jeremiah Abuso-Koromoa. If he is there at 20, you take him. If Mac Jones and Darisar are off the board, because he is going to be a really good linebacker. And other guys can be J.C. Horn, Jalen Mayfield, or Tevin Jenkins. But my, my, my three best players to get at that 20th pick would be Christian Darisar, Mac Jones, or Jeremiah Wusokoromoa. That's who I target. And in the second round, I target Jamin Davis, linebacker out of Kentucky, if I can't get a linebacker in the first round. Terrace Marshall Jr. out of LSU. Christian Barrymore, defensive lineman from Alabama. So be, if you get a defensive lineman in the draft, you could maybe move on from Akeem Hicks easier. And Kelvin Joseph, cornerback out of Kentucky. Jabril Cox. Dylan Radins is another guy um, out of North Dakota State who played with Trey Lance as a tackle. But in my second round, I think the Bears get Rashad Bateman. I think he's going to last that long to where they're picking. Wow. And I think Rashad Bateman will go to Chicago. So my dream draft, basically, for the first two rounds are the Bears drafting Christian Darisaw and Rashad Bateman. And in the third round, you got guys like Brevin Jordan, Levi Onwuzuruki, Sam Cosme, Chaz Surratt, Talania Hofunga. So there are a lot of guys, but in my dream scenario for the draft, the first four rounds, I have the Bears drafting Christian Darisaw, Rashad Bateman, Jay Tufeli, 
and Brevin Jordan. So getting a tight end, getting a tackle, getting a wide receiver, and getting a defensive tackle. So it'll be easy to move on from Akeem Hicks if you choose to go that direction later on. Yeah, even as low as I've been on Mac Jones, at 20 or later, I would not hate that pick. You know, even as as much as I've knocked on him, he had a great college career. There's no debating that. And, you know, I don't think he's, uh, you know, I'm not ready to write him off by any means. I think at the 20th pick, he could be a, a solid pick. Um, if if you don't want to go quarterback there, I think later on in the draft, you can get a guy that you've mentioned throughout a couple of these previews, Jamie, Jamie Newman from Georgia. He's a little bit more of a wild card, but you could get him much later, and he could be a project if you want to start Foles this year and, you know, let him develop a little bit. Um, if you want to go tackle, you mentioned Christian Darrisaw. Alex Leatherwood is another guy they could target at the 20th overall pick. I was thinking Bateman at the 20th overall pick. Maybe I'm overrating him and his value right now, his draft stock. Um, but wide receiver is going to be tough in the first round just because once you get beyond that first group, I think there's a little bit of a gap before you get to that second group of receivers like Kadarius Tony and Rashad Bateman. So I don't know if I would go receiver in the first round at 20, depending on who's there. You meant a guy like J.C. Horn I think would be a solid pick for him at 20. Um, if they didn't want to go tackle early, I think a guy like Quinn Mainers is a guy who they could pick up later on in the draft. Um, but I do think that offensive line and wide receiver and corner are three of the biggest positions to target. They could look quarterback, but I don't think it's a pressing need. I think they can wait a year and see where they're at next year and let Nick Foles take the reins this season. I think quarterback is a pressing need, but you can't force a quarterback. That's what I'm saying. They're that's in, what it a is. Tough position. You know, it, it's a pressing need. You need to get a quarterback, but you can't force one to be good. So you can't draft one just because. Exactly. If Mac Jones is there, you draft him. But I don't know if he's going to fall to the 20th pick. Kadarius to- Tony Tony is rated higher than Rashad Bateman. Daniel Jeremiah's top 50 players. Rashad Bateman is like 40 to 50th. Like he's, I think he's wow. in the 40s. So. I know people on TikTok are very high on Rashad Bateman, but yeah, I've seen videos like a film analysis of like Rashad Bateman, but I think he can be really good, but he's not rated as high as guys like Kadarius Tony and guys like that. Um, I think he's in the other class, like the Diami Diami Browns of um, North Carolina and stuff like that. Even though Rashad Bateman could be good, but I think a guy who people are sleeping on are Tamarion Terry from Florida State. He didn't play in 2020 much because he was injured, but he's a good-ass player. Like, he's a really good player. Like, Tamarion Terry is going to be one of the steals in the draft this season. He's really good. How far do you think he's going to drop? Tamarion Terry? I think he'd be like a third, fourth fourth rounder. I think Amari Rodgers is going to be a really good receiver. He's going to drop to third or fourth. So this is a really loaded receiver class. So, But my dream depth chart for the Bears for 2021, Nick Foles or Sam Donald starting at quarterback, David Montgomery, Darnell Mooney, Tim Patrick, Rashad Bateman, Cole Komet, Christian Darisaw, Cody Whitehair, Sam Mustafer, James Daniels, Bobby Massey, and on defense, Khalil Mack, Akeem Hicks, Eddie Goldman, Robert Quinn, Danny Trevathan, Roquan Smith, Kyle Fuller, Jalen Johnson, Cameron Sutton, Eddie Jackson, and Tashawn Gibson. A good thing about Cameron Sutton as well is that Cameron Sutton played in the box a lot. So he, he can play the nickel slot. He can he can play um, in the box. He can play outside. So he's shown extreme versatility. So he'd be a huge get for the Bears. But overall, 
I think if the Bears make the proper cuts and spend right in free agency, this can be a very good team next season. Because Nick Foles, even though he's not a a quarterback that you name with like the top level quarterbacks in the NFL, Nick Foles is still a good quarterback. I think he can win you games in the NFL. So you just surround him with weapons, great defense. I think they can have a good year next year. You think they could be a playoff team? I think they'd be a playoff team next season. No doubt about it. They were there. I, I, I was very surprised that they that they were still there at the end of the season this year. Yeah. And that's going to do it for our offseason preview of the Chicago Bears. And this is going to do it for this episode of the Pick Aside Podcast. As always, uh, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us grow in the algorithm. And you can follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Pick Aside Podcast, on Twitter at Pick Aside Pod. And if you would like to if you would like to donate to us on Patreon, you can at patreon.com slash pick aside podcast. Thank you all for tuning into this episode and we will see you next time.